In a world of art and entertainment, we often seek deeper meaning and overanalyze the presentation. Director Paul Verhoeven often uses B-movie genre as a vehicle for complex human emotions, social satire, and shocking sex and violence. Is this genius subtext for the artist's intent, or our own imagination looking for cosmic connection where none were intended? We call, we this, call dilemma this dilemma the Verhoeven effect. Listen to the Verhoeven Effect podcast. I'm Common. I'm Nathan. And we have an extra special episode as we're doing another Paul Verhoeven movie on the Verhoeven Effect. Yeah, imagine that. <laughs> I guess I was sort of dead set on doing it in chronological order, but we didn't want to just jump into Robocop without giving it's just you <laughs> lots of research. So we went with Basic Instinct which is a movie I have not seen, but is infamous, so of course I know about it. Yeah. So yeah, Basic Instinct came out in 1992, directed by Paul Verhoeven, written by Joe Esterhaus, who is a uh, basically like a, a screenwriting rock star for yeah. as much as, screen, as that can happen to screenwriters. Uh, he's very unique in his position in Hollywood, and he no longer works in Hollywood as far as I know. He just writes books. Yeah, interesting background on him. He was like a Hungarian immigrant. Like he was born in 44 in Hungary. As they're like, yeah, not a good time to be born in Hungary. (laughs) And so, yeah, they're refugees trying to leave Hungary and get to America. And they finally did when he was like about eight or something like that. And he has several autobiographies. The one I read is called Hollywood Animal. This will get into it later. He's the hero of the book, but he's also just. In much the way when we read that read that Bret Hart autobiography, it's like, yeah, he seems to be right and like really good at his craft, but he's also just cheating on his wife constantly. Yeah, <laughs> and it's just kind of a blase mention in his autobiography. Like, I guess he could have never mentioned it, but it's, <laughs> but it's always like a surprise. Like, oh, we got divorced. Like, <laughs> oh my god. No, I can't believe uh, it. But yeah, he's also he's like the hero of 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 his book because. In his mind, like the writing process is the most important process. Like a movie doesn't get made if nothing's written. Although when you start to learn about Hollywood, that's not true. Right, yeah. <laughs> Pages are coming in on the day and they've already blocked out some action scene that they're already shooting that doesn't isn't written into the screenplay yet. <laughs> and he, he kind of sees the writers as like the kind of ultimate creation of whether it is and he kind of sees like everybody else is just technicians that are just like putting his words to film so he doesn't necessarily see them as like creatives uh or not as important as his creativity is. oh okay um but you know that's his point of view but also there's like so many things that like i don't like it might be unique for him and like never for anybody else, but he's basically like, you know, I'm a writer, but I, he gets, he talks about like, he gets like say in like shooting locations, actor choices, uh, like all this stuff where it's like, and I know from lots of other stories, like, <laughs> like nobody gives a crap about the writers. Yeah. <laughs> they are not given this kind of leeway, but the amount of money they paid him, like, okay, it's like, okay, I guess, cause he was, he, he probably still holds a record for like, largest money ever spent on a screenplay so because yeah for the famously for this movie he wrote on spec he just had like a stream of consciousness one day 
and just like wrote basic instinct and a spec script it's like means written on speculation like i think i can sell this where it's like what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to like go to producers give your ideas see which one they like and then you write the screenplay based on like the idea you pitch them and then like you kind of like give them what you have as you go and then they give you notes and like he hated that <laughs> okay <laughs> because it's either either the producers just need to have their I- ideas in the screenplay so they can have their fingerprints on it or they're like parroting market research which also doesn't help your movie it's just like this is what people are buying right now it's like yeah but this movie's gonna be made four years from now so yeah <laughs> so he wrote it on spec uh it got sent around because he's already he was already in hollywood and it got a bidding war on it and so it ended up uh producers at carolco which produced this movie which is unintentional because last week's movie is also a carolco movie and they did get bought by studio canal and they no longer exist so. oh, okay <laughs> and actually in this movie in the pr- production credits there it's a carolco slash studio canal production okay yeah, so they they bought the script for three million dollars, which is at that time like that's more than some directors were getting, and like and an actor and like star actors were getting. So, of course, everybody was mad at him. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> he also said it was a competition because I guess the record around the same time too is that Shane Black got like almost two million dollars for uh, the Last Boy Scout. Oh really? Okay. <laughs> uh, so Esther House wanted to beat that, because so. before that he also held the record before we got like a million dollars for one of his screenplays. But yeah, that's Joe Esther House. I think I'll talk more after. But uh, yeah, stars Michael Douglas, Sharon Stone, which is her star-making performance. <laughs> yep. It's also kind of interesting because, like, in the book, they're talking about how like she was 34 at the time she did this and that was kind of so like you know especially for women that was considered like over the hill and like this is like her start of her career essentially (laughs) and george dezunda which the last time we saw him was in the 79 salem's lot (laughs) yeah yeah i recognized him right away i mean he's like the character actor and everything yeah I saw you know this is a sex thriller so i uh, yeah that seems synonymous with michael douglas but when i looked up the stuff it's like it's like fatal attraction basic instinct and then like disclosure and that's kind of like the three but i felt like he did like eight of them or something but it's kind of just those three yeah it just made an impact especially this one and uh, yeah fatal attraction probably resonated more with like a wider audience but yeah this one (laughs) definitely definitely but i think disclosure was like a year later so they're but also like michael douglas was 47 when he did this yeah so, so like i've never seen this before uh not that i mean i don't know. i mean i always heard about it like it's one of those movies where it's like you know about through cultural osmosis but i just never bothered to pick it up uh i imagine like when i was uh a teenager or something like it'd probably been like some kind of holy grail to find at your parents house <laughs> like this is basically poor yeah <laughs> that's how like i remember like kids at school would talk about it but i was never one to indulge in it so <laughs> i had more sneaky ways of uh of renting uh stuff from the library or, or checking it out and you get like uh and they only had like pg and g movies and you get like police academy 3 beach patrol and there's like a scene where like some ladies are like or suntaning their back and then like somebody scares them and they get up and they're naked <laughs> 
Somehow that slipped past the library censorship board, huh? Well, it's rated PG. Yeah, I discovered this in like, uh, I think 95 was when I watched it. Of course, I would have been well over the age of 18 by then. So, um, and it was something you watched from like a video store. When yeah. you rent like 15 movies and you're just watching them all weekend. And I, I remember this one stood out as a particularly cool looking movie. And it was, you know, the, to me, it's like a Hitchcock movie, but the, like the main characters actually have sex and they show it. Other than that, yeah. like the story and parts of the soundtrack, very Hitchcock. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, that's what that's what Verhoeven was going for. So Yeah, and he, he achieved it. And some really like beautiful city scenery shots and and um beautiful houses and cool cars and all that <laughs> this is a movie like uh, it, it's it's look and it's soundtrack kind of saved it from being sort of like uh eh, okay yeah it just it had a great look and feel to it oh yeah, yeah. well yeah yeah undemont says that like a lot of stuff he did for this movie basically got stolen for well other movies but he didn't put that out but the one he pointed out is like it got into a lot of like commercial stuff yeah oh yeah i could see that <laughs> definitely like that amazing house she was at just by the sea it's like wow is that a real place and it is yeah uh, uh last time i saw it, the trivia had on last time it was sold for 14 million dollars yeah that's about right yeah it looks like that <laughs> uh, it's probably way more now I, even like the hazel lady she lives in like this little small house in san francisco that's probably worth like five million dollars right. right now or something well that's a funny thing like when we were watching uh, 48 hours and it's like the gritty san francisco or you even go back further like dirty harry you know it's it's like yeah it's san francisco it's a dirty city it's full of crime it's like yeah now a shack there costs 10 million dollars and <laughs> it's like the city is so has so much money they don't know what to do with it all and Everyone, yeah, you know, the pe- people that live there are just miserable for the most part because you know, I mean, you can't afford anything. Like, yeah, you can't afford it. So yeah, it's yeah. It's, if you're a cop or a fireman in San Francisco, like, what do you do? Live with 15 people in a uh, storage you, crate? <laughs> now you live in Oakland, but now Oakland's like even too rich for people. Now people are just like going even farther. <laughs> yeah, that's sustainable. You probably you probably got people. You probably got cops in San Francisco that probably live in Sacramento or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, or they got into real estate when it was cheap, and they're like, yeah, I'm just waiting for my pension, but they have a net value of like $20 million. And yeah. It's, uh, yeah. But, yeah, yeah, it's like, I mean, that's what, like, you hear a bunch of stories down there where it's basically just every car that gets parked anywhere is just broken into it's people looking for drugs so it's just and like i'm sure the people that are like well if anybody has a car they must be super rich and so there's just this huge divide where it's like you're either a millionaire or you're homeless that's what san francisco yeah it's the whole country's (laughs) heading that way and everyone's like okay like yeah this is great well i mean we've always been one earthquake away from from that whole framework collapsing too so it's like yeah there's so many podcasts I listen to because a lot of like video games journalism took place in San Francisco and like almost all those people don't live in San Francisco anymore. <laughs> in fact, like half of them moved to New Jersey, which is weird. <laughs> or South Carolina. That's another place. They're all going. <laughs> Imagine if they had like a real bone shaker there. I mean, like a 9.9. And it's just yeah. what would it cost to rebuild it? Like four trillion dollars. I mean, it would. they would just be like, yeah, we're done. Just. Okay, all of the other western states, you can cut us off from the Colorado River now. We're all moving. You know, it's, 
it's we've we made it so expensive you can't it, rebuild it. I don't, well, I don't know. Like I don't know. Like you had some type of devastation like that. I imagine that a lot of people leave, and yeah. then the real estate goes down, and then it's oh now we can do this again. <laughs> San Francisco is used to just rebuilding itself, so it's. <laughs> probably not a problem well, i mean well if you had a 9.8 or something there would be no structures standing there would be nothing left it would uh it would be it was like the worst possible scenario but yeah i've always wondered that about california it's like those insurance companies like half the insurance companies in the country just vaporize it's like yeah because they're yeah. holding how much you know how much are they holding in a, in a state that's like it's known well, and how much money are they making just on like the the idea of it <laughs> yeah I, I i don't know and then and that they never intend on actually paying out <laughs> no 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 they just run to the government and... <laughs> so uh, yeah i've always wondered about that with it's like yeah that san francisco looks like one of the coolest places in the world to live to see it i mean i don't could never afford to live there and probably too many people for me but when you watch movies like this and there's some other great san francisco movies and it's like oh this place looks amazing it's like yeah. i could see why people live there it's like this is cool i don't uh, think it really gets super hot there either no it's actually like way colder than you think it is yeah you pretty much you got to be prepared for both like it's going to be screaming hot but then it's also because it's by the bay it's like you're going to have a sweater in the morning that's just how it is and it's going to be foggy all the time too, especially in the morning. But yeah, oh yeah, that morning fog is a real chiller. So, <laughs> and then it becomes California weather. So yeah, and then the sun goes down, and something else happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Act One, like I said, it's another Caraco picture, and Extreme Measures was a was one last week, not intentional. We just picked the movie. We have like a credit sequence where it's kind of like fractured, like it's a broken mirror or something, uh, and vaguely kind of out of focus human shapes in the background or something yeah it was something weird like oh is this where they got the idea for seven like what is this <laughs> oh there's a lot of like comparisons between this and like science of the lands which is a year earlier but like this script was already like made like yeah before that so uh but you could draw some similarities there if you wanted to oh yeah it's a dark i mean at its core it's a dark movie i mean it's 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 a really but it there's so much like Silence of the Lamb was always on message. Like this can get almost corny and ridiculous at some point. Oh, yeah, and yeah. they just turn the corner on you real sharp. It's like, huh? <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, like the sort of the history as I was written, it's like he's, he wrote just in stream because he is he was a Joe Esterhouse was like a journalist and okay. he's used to like and he really liked to do like research on stuff, like find like the real thing and put that to film. Like that's what he liked doing. Like the first first script he wrote was, was a movie called Fist, which is about a like truck driver union starring Sylvester Stallone. Okay. <laughs> and it was interesting because like some some like lady I didn't get her name, she was like a some sort of producer. She discovered his writing since she thought he would make a good screenwriter. And so he got contracted to write this movie. And so yeah, he did all he did a lot did a lot of research on it, and uh, most of his money was spent on like traveling and doing research, and so he got like he got like eighty grand for it, but he said because he spent like forty grand <laughs> doing research, which is like man, what kind of research are you doing? Yeah, it's all bribes. It's, <laughs> yeah, you like just like doing just copying whole books at ten cents a page. And how much of that research was white powder? Because um, you know it's the eighties. Yeah. Uh, well, then it was seventies. <laughs> oh, seventy. Well, yeah, it was probably on the west coast. That was still a thing. Yeah, even then. 
he has some funny butting heads with Sylvester Stallone because he's like coming off a of Rocky, and in the movie the guy dies, and Sylvester Stallone's like. Yeah, America's not gonna expect. They don't want to see Rocky die. It's like, yeah, but you're not Rocky. It's like that doesn't matter to America. Yeah, <laughs> it's one and the same. And he was probably right. But <laughs> Sylvester Sloan is actually very intelligent on some levels, but yeah, yeah, like he does under. He seems to, as long as his career has been, and for all the ups and downs it's had, he seems to be like he's kind of like a Schwarzenegger. Like he's like, oh, I'm, he's really smart underneath all that, and. He yeah. can keep it together to a certain, you know, not in every aspect, but in most. And then, so, so he did that movie and it, it kind of flops and he spends like five years just writing screenplays that don't get produced, but <laughs> all of Hollywood likes his scripts. Yeah. And so his, like his rates just keep going up, even though none of his movies get produced. <laughs> oh, he's getting like, oh, okay. He's getting like just <laughs> reputation credits. Yeah. Like, if you need a script, <laughs> this guy can make a script. Well, we don't know if we'll like it or not, but yeah. And then he does a rewrite on Flashdance, and that's his first hit movie. Okay, I could see that. Somebody, somebody else wrote a completely different Flashdance, but it was about like these, uh, yeah, like it was called Flashdancing, but it was about like basically like pretty women in Toronto that are doing this on the side, or just like wealthy business and pay like these people that look like they're penthouse models to like strip in front of them for like outrageous amounts of money. And so yeah, he wrote that screenplay it was a hit. Like he was kind of mad at first. It was like, ah, that the critics hate it. It's like we're doomed. It didn't open that well, but then it, like the next six weeks, it like increased its numbers. It's like word oh, of mouth, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like oh, it's critic proof. Um, and so that was like his first hit. He's talking about his like really his big. He talks about the, the really big hit, which I a movie I never heard out called Jagged Edge. Have you ever heard of? Oh it? yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because he said that that was like his huge hit, and I looked at the box office and said it made like forty million. I was like, that doesn't really seem like a huge hit, but like I adjusted it for inflation in in eighty five, eighty five dollars. It's a hundred million dollars nowadays. I was like, oh okay, I guess. Well, it's <laughs> also a movie cool. that like resonated because it's essentially it's it's very similar to this. Like it's 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 more focusing on mental illness than sex, but yeah, it's uh it's a very very, very memorable performances in that movie. But yeah, that's another one I haven't seen. So I was just <laughs> he kept well, he kept referring to it being a huge hit. I just never heard of it before. Oh yeah, so. it's, it's a good movie. But also, I also looked at all the other movies that came out that year, and it's like, it's like crazy how like like the seventieth highest box office like has more like cultural value than that movie does that because like, i think weird science came out that year made yep. like 20 million and that's still people know what weird science is <laughs> so <laughs> but anyway so like i forget what movie he was working on but he wanted to do lots of research because that's what he was like banking on that kept being authentic and and some producer told him like no just, just use your imagination <laughs> yeah just make it up <laughs> so this was the movie that was just a stream of consciousness completely make it up no research <laughs> had it sent around and it's uh it got to verhoven he, he, he got attached to it he like he wanted to make it um but he wanted to change some things which joe asfaust didn't write and and like what's circling around is the first draft yeah and then uh and so they have like a big argument verhoven and Esterhaus. And then Verhoeven goes off with his people to try to like rewrite the things he wants rewritten, uh, and then they come back and Verhoeven actually apologized to Joe Esterhaus. Says like, 
there's no other way to do it. We got to shoot your draft. Yep. <laughs> he's like, are you serious? <laughs> he's like, yes. And he's like, never had a director or a producer like apologize to him before. So that he like earned him like, like, oh, this guy's like, oh, you can trust this guy for life. Yeah. Um, he didn't lie to my face. Wow. <laughs> this is a Hollywood miracle. <laughs> so yeah, the, the movie, they shot the first, you know, they shot the first draft of the movie. So, you know, if, that's why they like this this has like a, there's a lot of standout moments in this movie but like if you like watch it and try to pick it apart it's pretty easy to pick it apart because yeah. it's not really meant to do <laughs> this is not a movie meant to hold up to scrutiny this is a movie no. where you're just along for the ride <laughs> and there's some really cool stuff in it if you're willing to forget a lot of other stuff and it's it's satisfying but the, the, this is a movie that's satisfying for me on the strength of individual performances and cinematography as a whole yeah. movie no <laughs> it's not and that's why it doesn't but, hold up well with a lot of critics either yeah well also like the thing is like there is like there is clever writing to this there are things that's that stand out excellent the writing, writing though, in this <laughs> yeah even though like if you look at it it's like this isn't a great story but it's somehow still good yeah. <laughs> So, this is how yeah, you would imagine there. people would act to lead these things to be able to happen. Yeah. It's like you hope that like all police are stupid, um, or it's like <laughs> yeah, just go with that and let's see what happens. Like let's let 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 that play out. What happens? Well, people die. Oh well, oops. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also, I, I, it's kind of a fun thing where you just follow around impossible people. It's like yeah. It's like, what does she do? It's like, well, she inherited millions of dollars and she doesn't have to do anything. It's like, okay, well, then that character can basically do whatever they want. Yep. <laughs> which isn't like, doesn't resonate with common people, but it is like exciting, which is what her character is. It's like her whole character is like, I wish I could be that open and honest and have absolutely nothing be responsible for absolutely nothing yeah i have like, nothing to lose I, I, you know, <laughs> I i could be a complete you know it's just like i'm in complete control even when it seems like i'm not sex is just a tool i'm basically a psychopath who likes to do murders in the open and write stories about them and just be like haha i did it again you know it's a fascinating character study it's again like you said completely unrealistic people but it's like oh well if someone likes that it was like that then yeah because uh, it's like hannibal lecter was scary and manipulative too but with the caveat he got caught yeah like he's he's like oh he is in a cage now for well you know conceivably <laughs> forever it's like yeah but he he was an evil crazy like impossible guy you know a guy with a 200 iq who's just going to run around and be a cannibal and and you know critique culture it's like oh, that's fascinating <laughs> Paul Verhoeven and Jan de Bont are back working again. Jan de Bont's a cinematographer. He worked with him a lot in his Dutch movies. He wanted to work with him on RoboCop, but the, that wasn't a union shoot, and Jan de Bont was already in the union. So this is their first American film together. Okay. So sorry, we have a shot of a ceiling mirror. A mirror. She always uh, knows yeah. something good's going to happen when those are in yeah. play. Uh, I'm not sure if like, cause that was like a thing for a while. Did this start that or is that just kind of always a thing? I think or that's always that, like, been a pervy thing. Like who would want okay. that except yeah. like sex weirdos in California? I don't know. Like, was that in like, I don't know, like Scarface or something like that? I'm sure it was. Okay. It was seen as like, it's, it's like kind of a, uh, mirrors on the ceiling are what I call like Roman indulgence, uh, signals. <laughs> 
It's like, oh, what's the weirdest thing you could imagine someone doing? It's like, oh, mounting a mirror on your ceiling so you could watch yourself with whoever you were in bed with. <laughs> it's like, now I, I try to put myself in that position. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> see my face or anything. But like really weirdo narcissistic people would love like, Oh, yeah. yeah, that turns my crank. So, yeah, that's what that I consider that like mirror on the ceiling is a classic like symbol of what I call Roman indulgence of, of like, what's the worst perverted thing you could do? And it's like, yeah, that's one of them. See, I'd just be worried about it falling on me. That's exactly what I would be worried about. Cause you know, if you're like, what kind of contract are you going to hire to, Hey, cause, cause if it's like high quality, like, you know, real lead glass, like the real good stuff, it's going to weigh like a hundred pounds to cover uh-huh. that much area. It's like, yeah, it's just going to crush you if it falls on you and then break into sharp pieces and, but somehow that never comes into the picture. It's it's like you got to find, you got to look for a, um, like oh I'm looking on you know Craigslist for or whoever Angie's list for a contractor. And it's like discretion a must. It's like oh what are we building? <laughs> so we have people revealed having sex, and so we pan down from the mirror or oh, why do you actually say it? it's not a, it's a tilt and see them having sex. There's a lady ties the guy's arms to, to the bed. <laughs> the way you just stabs the dude several times with an ice pick. And they show yeah. it, too. They don't, like, oh, pan yeah. away. It's just like, no, we're going to watch this guy take one to the neck. Well, they have, like, a, they made a really good dummy because there's, like, one shot where, like, the ice pick just, like, goes, like, straight through his face. And, yeah. Like, but it's, like, just for a moment. It's like, wait, did they just actually stab that dude in the face? But it was, like, just enough. Also, he's covered in blood at this point, too, so it was easier to hide. So Yeah. Well, the way and, it's filmed and with, like, the contrast of, like, the white silk scarf, because, you know, it's, like, it's all expensive stuff he's being tied up with. And the way it's filmed, and it's a real, like, yeah, you know, it's one of those grinding erotic sex scenes. It's not just people casually, like, bouncing around or whatever, because it's filmed kind of in shadow, but you can see a lot, and you can pretty much guess yeah. what's going on. It's a very believable sex scene. And, and the, then we the hair's cut. in front of her face, so we don't exactly see yeah. who it is. And then we cut right away to like this guy's just taking one to the neck and they're showing it. It's like that's such a contrast of like, oh, wow, sex and death like right there, you know. Yeah. So then we cut to Detective Nick Curran, played by Michael Douglas. I just have him in Cur- as Curran, or or I guess it's Curran, right? I, yeah, that's what I thought it was. Curran, not Curran. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Detective Curran. <laughs> Uh, played by Michael Douglas, and we have Detective Gus Moran, played by George Gazunda. They show up at the crime scene. Johnny Boz is the victim. He used to be like a rock star. He had a couple hit songs, coasting on his past. Uh, yeah, he runs a there. nightclub. Yeah. <laughs> they introduce Captain Talcott, who's uh, Chelsea Ross. Yeah. Who I always remember as like the the crafty veteran. Like over the hill pitcher in major league. <laughs> okay, yeah, I remember that performance. Uh, he's just observing because I guess like the Mister Boz here was like contributing to like the mayor's like electoral campaign. So now there's like extra eyes on this case. So. And they put that right up front, like, yeah, yeah, this is why I'm here. Like they're just openly like, yeah, this is all political. It's it's all money and and influence and what you know we need we need this resolved. And then they reveal like all the stains all over the sheet with a uv light reveal which was was that like a first time that was in movies i don't remember it before that okay because i know in this movie they were wearing the big goofy glasses to make it work now now you don't yeah. do that it just you just shine it around and <laughs> yeah you just gotta turn off all the other lights yeah yeah that's like a big thing that's like 
your local news team will do. <laughs> Go into a hotel room and yeah, just put one of those on. It looks like someone just sprayed white out all over the room with a cannon. It's like, did they stage that or is that really going on? Because like um, in this movie, the quantity of, you know, like male sexual fluids is like, Oh wow! Okay, this guy was really like uh, that, that. Does that's not normal? Okay, that's this is like uh, is, uh, the uh, best sex you ever had in your life times ten. Who's Joe Rogan's friend? I, I see a lot of friends, but you know he does the other part. Tom Segura. He's a, oh. the way he always describes it is like that man was slinging ropes. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> That's vile and funny all at the same time. Uh, uh, yes, yeah. They also have they show that they, they, they see the guy's flaccid penis, but Verhoeven really wanted to put a erect penis for the first time in American cinema. He just couldn't get to happen. Nope, they wouldn't let him. They denied him his art. <laughs> Which I haven't seen like his Dutch like sex thrillers, but. Uh, they they just don't care over there. So yeah, it's, <laughs> it's the, the, they don't see. That's the weird. Uh, that is the weird divide between American and global cinema. It's like they'll show sex in a movie, like, and it's like, yeah, bring your family to this movie. We don't care. Nudity is natural, but like, we'll like freak out about that. But if someone's being decapitated with a chainsaw, yeah, leave that in. <laughs> just don't show her boobs. Just you know, it, yeah. it's like that's how. We're, but if you try to show movies where people are just being torn apart with farm equipment. And some of those countries are like, yeah, that's really wrong. That's not really a good thing to fill people's heads with. I kind of reject that argument. I don't think video games and movies cause violence. I think no. craziness and hopelessness cause violence. But yeah. it's still, it's a weird divide between us and the rest of the world. It's like, oh, you want to see someone's head blown apart with a shotgun? Yeah, we can do that. Well, how about if we show a nipple? No. <laughs> nipple bad. Well, I remember, like the the a lot of the people that uh, escaped to America to kill the indigenous people to create their own country, or a lot of them were prudes. Yeah, <laughs> we weirdly enough, from those processes. <laughs> yeah, you just pulled apart that guy's family, him and his family, with a hatchet, but you did, can't mention sex. It's like you, you, guys, you guys are really missed, mixed up, missed, missed up. <laughs> somehow, it's just like not good. And yeah, I've and only lived in this country, and this is all I know. And I even know it's like <laughs> this is kind of weird. But then, of course, I also have like an arsenal of guns, and I'm really fat, so I'm a typical American in every other. Way. Uh, well, I was like Europe, but they have like sex in their commercials, so that's how blasé it is there too. Yeah, I never, I don't think so. I've never found sex and nudity to be something com either very intriguing or disturbing to me. And yeah. I, you know, I was never that way with my son either. Like, don't look at dirty stuff on the internet. I was like, don't give my credit card out on the internet. Was what I said. I don't care what you look at. <laughs> Just don't don't be like going into dad's wallet and yeah. I have to go beg the Russians for my you know password. I'd like no. I mean, I like I don't like I don't I don't object to the, the to the content of this movie, but I definitely don't want to like watch this movie with other people. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no, I, I couldn't. Uh, <laughs> that's where it gets kind of with strangers. No, <laughs> movies for me have just become a solo experience in the last five years. Yeah. It's like it all happens right here. I don't I don't go to theaters anymore. I don't and not because I'm afraid of COVID or anything, but just because it's like, oh, I hate going to the movie theaters. It's like, yeah, I, I like going to the oddball movies like me and Grayson would go to like the you know, the place that only shows movies from overseas. It's like, well, it's just going to be us, buddy. So we got the whole theater to ourselves. 
but yeah, yeah the last I, time I went to a big movie where it was like I had to sit in the front with my head up and people were talking and had their damn phones on like the whole movie like just bright yeah. screens like what are you doing <laughs> what? this movie ticket was like $14 <laughs> like just wasting your time my time yeah it was it was Avatar and The Dark Knight that really like I don't want to see movies with other people because it was both like packed theaters and I had to sit up front and it's like never again. I'm watching movies on Tuesdays at at noon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't, uh, I know there is such a thing as a theater experience, but I'm getting to the point like my TV screens are getting so big. It's like, well, this is damn near. I, I do agree with David Lynch. Like you should never watch this stuff on your phone unless yeah. you just have to speed watch it for some reason. At least a good TV in high definition is probably acceptable. But, yeah, the big screen is like, it's a cool idea. But it's like, uh, unless I can buy every seat in a theater and just know that I'm going to be the only one in there, I'm not interested. Yeah, the only thing that I find like, oh, yeah, the audience helped this movie is usually comedies. I remember like. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Like South Park, the movie that was great with an audience because they just loved everything. And I saw Clerks too, which I think is like a great movie in some respects but it's like when i rewatch it it's like oh this was not as funny as it was in the theater with the packed audience that was yeah. laughing at everything yeah <laughs> oh yeah so yeah there's really there's drugs at the scene too so that's like an extra mix like you know everything <laughs> also i guess this movie is like somewhat controversial because aids was big at the time and like here's just like a freewheeling sex movie yeah um, i mean it's also a fantasy but yeah it's yeah 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 which I don't know, like you. You listen to the stories from Joe uh, Esterhouse, like he's just talking about like having sex with all these like Hollywood starlets and stuff like that, and producers getting mad at him is like she wants to sleep with me. Like you're just a writer. Yeah, <laughs> it's like oh, like oh, all these women were basically were basically forced to like to advance their careers, sleep with all these guys. It's like what a horrible place. And Esterhouse has multiple stories of just like picking up women at bars, and then like the next morning finding written on the seal written on the the mirror welcome to the wonderful world of aids which he said had happened multiple times to him and it was like the joke going around which was which meant there was just like thousands of ladies that were trying to get jobs sleeping with all these dirty men <laughs> hope it's a better place now <laughs> i could not imagine that's yeah when i hear those stories I mean, you know, it's it's no secret, like, I'm, you know, monogamous. I've been married 25 years to the same person. It's like I still, to this day, as a guy who's, like, almost 50, with all the experience I've had in the world and all the horrible things I've seen and people that I've known, could not imagine, like, just having sex with a complete stranger two hours after meeting him. It's like, that is such an alien. I would be so frightening. I'd be like, oh, don't look at me. I'm taking my pants out. You know, I just couldn't, I would never feel comfortable enough, but you know, but I'm also not some arrogant psychopath with millions of dollars just flying on cocaine yeah. either. I'm sure that makes it better. That lubricates that behavior, but it's still, it's like this whole concept of just sleeping with just complete strangers. Well, is like so I mean, weird. The thing in the book, you can, like he's not necessarily like condemning it in the book, but like you can see how. Uh, but he's also he's not the I don't know like the worst person is basically Robert Evans. Like he says, like Robert Evans is my friend. Every lie I ever print about him is true. Yeah, <laughs> he sounds like a he just a human uh, 
just just the just human just embodiment of sin. <laughs> it's yeah. like yeah, it's, Robert Evans is just sin. He's not evil. He's just sin. <laughs> yeah. just, uh, and you can see how like why these, all these like producers and stuff get in trouble now is because they worship those guys. They thought those stories were cool, and they didn't think anybody was being taken advantage of. It's like everybody's having fun. Everybody gets a job, right? <laughs> so. Yeah. As long as everyone gets paid, it's like the, the just stuff the stuff the money in the wound and it'll heal. It's like no, you're hurting people, which has everything to do with this movie we're talking about. Actually, yeah, yeah. so it works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you want to see like the yeah, imagine like okay, yeah, this writer who's living a rock star lifestyle is writing a movie where basically somebody's living a rock star lifestyle and they murder on top of it. Yeah, it's it's like yeah, it's, this is the one this is the one thing that's missing. This is my fantasy what I'm jealous that I can't actually do. Curran and Moran go to Catherine Tremell's house. It's one of her houses. Yeah, one, one of like, the amazing houses. Like this is the one in San Francisco. Yeah. There they're met by Roxy who's Catherine's friend slash doppelganger. Um, <laughs> Well, and her her lesbian girlfriend too. Yeah, well, I mean, they just they look alike. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Which they're, comes they're into sin- play later. So that's that's another yeah. thing I like about this movie. It's like, well, they're, <laughs> they're following through. So they're sent elsewhere to her other multi million dollar home that's like on the beach. I don't know where that is, but I'm guessing it's near San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's wherever you can drive in an old, you know, Chrysler police vehicle. They find Catherine, played by Sharon Stone, smoking on the balcony. There's some neat stuff in the commentary where it's like, Jan DeBont, just like, especially for Sharon Stone's, like her her side of the, when they shoot her side, he just like hid mirrors in the background so it would like, it would cast off light in weird ways and make the scene more interesting. Yeah, it does. <laughs> I mean, everyone looks off in this movie, but not like yeah. in like they're ugly or anything, but it's just like, oh, real people don't look this way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's done on purpose, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's just a lot of like brights and shadows and very, it's, it's you know, film noir in color and stuff like that. Um, yeah, that's why this movie looks so great. And like none of it's, and it does None of it looks realistic, but it looks cool, and that's all that matters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, George, even though, even though, even though that home that home is real, you know, it's like weird because I think because how they light them when they're standing on the balcony and how like the blue of the ocean is, it looks like they're on a green screen. But no, that place is real. No, yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, if um, I had millions of dollars, I'd live in a place like that just because not to impress anyone. Just it's amazing looking place. But really, um, in real life, like George Zunza is like that would like it would be two detectives like that in the real world, because that's what <laughs> that's what a lot of police detectives looks like. Well, now they're like tall and they look like former basketball players. Because, but yeah, like that's you know he was kind of like the everyman in the story. It's like you know what you're doing is crazy. It's like yeah, don't get involved with this woman. She's a killer. I know. Yeah, he's the only honest. He's the only like good person in the entire movie. Yeah. Because all the other cops are also shits, except for Sam, who's like the the cool guy who like actually analyzes all the evidence. Yeah, the guy's the only guy doing police work. It's not just <laughs> chasing his ego around trying to screw everyone over. Because that's you know how police departments work. I guess <laughs> they work this way, and you know, in, in Basic Instinct world, it's like all cops are narcissists. Yeah. Curran asked, like, so were you dating uh, Mr. Boz? And she, she was like, I wasn't dating him. I was f***ing him. Yep. 
<laughs> which I guess back then I'm trying to remember like this was put together in the 80s released in the early 90s I guess that would be shocking dialogue it's like nowadays like, oh everyone talks that way <laughs> you know it's like that wouldn't be uh seen as shocking to anyone well especially like for like a female character to, to yeah. sound like that that brass and open like that was probably a shocking at the time and they asked like Miss Tremel, are you sorry Mr. Boz is dead and she goes yeah I like yeah it was, it was good it was uh he took me places you know and yeah so they leave then we have a golden gate bridge reveal just so you know that you're in san francisco just to make it sure yeah and that insurance building is always in the background when they're in the city uh is that the which one's the insurance building? uh yeah the one tower? looks like a yeah one looks like a spike yeah it's koi tower yeah um or it might be called yeah because there's some other huge building there that has like a really like generic corporate name to it like like the investment firm building or something yeah. like that but that triangle one it's like i believe it's called koi tower one it looks like a knife or a ice pick so that's probably yeah. subliminally why it's oh yeah yeah time. yeah huh yeah there you go very old effect yeah <laughs> doing the work <laughs> Curran meets with an internal affairs psychologist maybe she's played by janine triplehorn yeah and her best performance yet actually her first performance yeah she's like just out of juilliard to do this yeah <laughs> which may be why she's like she does a fine job but also she seems weird in it but that also actually ends up working for her character yeah i i, I never because when i um i hadn't seen this in like five or six years and when i was watching i was like i don't remember the character being this this like odd and and, and um awkward i always thought of yeah. her as this, like a stronger like she's the psychiatrist foil to to his like manly you know psychopathy yeah you know. they basically have like a psychology or a session and current says he stopped drinking doing coke and smoking good for a cop <laughs> to stop doing those things and we find out why you know because he's got a nickname <laughs> and uh what he did he leaves and she like expresses like longing feelings so you know like oh <laughs> they have a relationship it's yeah like, that's super weird <laughs> another one of those things where it's like this shouldn't be happening in reality but like at this point you're just bought in it's like all right whatever yeah everyone's doing this here yeah, yeah nobody seems to care there's no consequences so why does it matter <laughs> i mean california like sex with your therapist is normal it's part of the healing process <laughs> and then we have uh, we have a squad going over like all the info they got from the crime scene and I wrote there, I go, I read her, Catherine's rap sheet. And then I, I figured, then I was like, what does a rap sheet mean? I guess it means record of arrest and prosecutions. Okay. I never <laughs> bothered to look that up. Okay. <laughs> so they don't, they don't look at her rap sheet because she doesn't have a rap sheet. They just kind of have her biography or whatever. Uh, so they go over like what, what, what's up with her. She says she graduated top of her class, magna cum laude at Berkeley, uh, which is a very highfalutin college and, the san francisco area it's not in san francisco but it's like it's like next to oakland or something yeah um it's but it's, but it's like a super hippie college but it's also uh seen as very like i don't, I don't think it's considered like a it's not like, like stanford but it's no like, it's not um, like that but it's around that it's kind of around that yeah or it's not like ivy league but it's like up there yeah it's <laughs> it's, it's like it's sort of like northwestern i'd say yeah, it's it's fancy. It's like it's, it's a fancy it's school a for rich people and smart people. Yeah, yeah. She graduated with a degree in literature and psychology, 
Um, Catherine's parents were rich, and so when they died in a boating accident, she aired, inherited over $100 million. Which would be a huge <laughs> amount of money back then. It's still a lot of money yeah. now, but back then it would have been like... Now, if they wrote this movie now, she'd be like a billionaire. Yeah, she'd have to be a billionaire. <laughs> She's also a writer, and last year she wrote a book that involved a retired rock, rock and roll star that gets murdered by his girlfriend. Yep. And so I have that being the plot point in the end of Act 1. As... Uh, I feel like this probably existed before where like somebody was writing a book and then basically in the movie, like what happens, the book happens in real life. Yeah. I think that has, I think it has. Yeah. I don't remember. Stephen King has done that, but that's more supernatural. I'm trying to think. Yeah. I'm sure that there is something in the, in the history and the archives of Alfred Hitchcock where something like that happened. And then something did happen in real life with that, where some lady wrote an essay called how to, how to kill your husband and get away with it, and then she literally <laughs> killed her husband. <laughs> Good for her. I mean, it's you got to believe in yourself. Now, interesting fact is that that uh, that book was was uh, inadmissible as evidence in the trial, but she's found guilty anyway. Of course, so. it was. Yeah. <laughs> so it was her book because the book was terrible advice because she got convicted. <laughs> Didn't work. You failed, ma'am. Twenty five yeah. to life. <laughs> Yeah, I had something like a ghost gun in there. So I was reading an article that said she bought a ghost gun kit, shot her husband in the back while he was because he was like a culinary uh, teacher at some college, and just shot him in the back one night and with a ghost gun. Ghost gun, <laughs> yeah, they're everywhere. <laughs> so we have uh, Act Two. Curran's at home reading Catherine's book called Love Hurts, which was the by Catherine Wolf. That's her pen name. Love Hurts was the original title of this screenplay. <laughs> okay, interesting. Uh, but he like like immediately changed it to Basic Instinct like three days later. But they kept that in there. He finds the added detail of like the the guy who gets killed in the book of being tied up with a silk sheet, as well as an ice pick as the murder weapon. So then they're like, well, that's just too on the nose. Yeah, this is. <laughs> I think she's telling us something, guys. <laughs> Uh, cut to next day. There's a meeting with the with a psychologist. That here it's Stephen Toblowski as Doctor Lamont. Uh, he is like one of the ultimate character actors. Yeah. Oh yeah. Here, here he still has hair, but he got he went bald pretty quickly, and he's been like he looked exactly like him himself for like the last forty years so. uh, or thirty years. But uh, yeah, he's still around. He does a lot of does comedy, drama, whatever. He's there. Although there's a lot of comedians casting roles in this movie <laughs> they're trying to figure out if Catherine is the killer and if it's or if it's a cat if it's a copycat killer and they they're, they're just basically trying to figure out like the book is either an alibi or a blueprint and they don't know which one it is <laughs> they have wayne knight showed up another comedian as ada john corelli and he's concerned about like making the case stick to Catherine. curran thinks she won't hide behind lawyers because he thinks that she'll she's just too arrogant brazen yeah, yeah. <laughs> i can handle this then we cut to Catherine seaside vista again Curran and moran are there and they take her away they say by arrest if necessary and then so she needs to go get dressed and while they wait like inside the house uh Curran finds an article on the table about him shooting some tourists and then Curran sees Catherine naked through a mirror this establishes the initial excitement and attraction yeah because <laughs> she probably put that mirror there on purpose because that's how she yeah, thinks yeah, yeah. yeah i mean that's that's what the paul verhoeven says in the commentary like 
it's like the mirror allows him to look at her without her seeing but like he's like but really she's two steps ahead so he, she wants him to see her yeah moran starts to read her her rights but then she just says like what do i need an attorney for and, and leads them out to their own car yep. <laughs> and then when they're in the they're driving over to the precinct and Catherine asks for cigarettes but Curran says he doesn't have smoke anymore uh, and she says, yes, you do. And then she just pulls out cigarettes anyway that she has. <laughs> He's like, I thought you didn't have cigarettes. He's like, oh, I looked. I guess I did. Yeah. And they're uh, in a fancy, like, old 1930s cigarette case. <laughs> and then they talk about suspension of disbelief, which is kind of like fourth wall breaking. <laughs> yeah. There's actually some stuff here in the movie that felt like this kind of like paved the way for like Scream, maybe. A Scream does it better, but. The whole like kind of like meta fourth wall breaking horror movie kind of thriller stuff. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the car scenes and interview scenes seem to be like, yeah, the audience is here too with us and we're yeah, all yeah. talking openly, which was kind of cool because the rest of the movie wasn't really constructed that way. But whenever <laughs> people were close and there was more than two people, um, it was it was always like, Oh yeah, you're a part of this too. I mean that's that's one of the things I liked about this movie is that yeah. that kind of stuff. Uh, and then she's talking about she's writing a new book and says it's about a detective who falls in love with the wrong woman and she kills him. So basically giving <laughs> clues to the rest of the movie. So she's brought into the interrogation room. She waived her rights to an attorney. They tell her she can't smoke, but she does anyways. She's like, what are you going to do? Arrest me for smoking? Yeah. Uh, she talks about how she liked having sex with Mr. Boss because he liked to experiment. Uh, then Crelly and like everyone else in the room are like getting flustered and turned on by Catherine's answers because she's just like being because basically she's just acting like I don't know, like men's fantasies where it's just a lady who's just open about sex and wants it all the time. <laughs> like, yeah, <we're, laughs> it's like you're impossible. You don't exist. Yeah, it just has no uh, inhibitions about you know. Yeah, I was like, I guess I should talk about like how this scene is like lit because it's like. You know, it's supposed to be an interrogation room, but it's like the most cinematic interrogation room in the world. Yep. There's just like, like there's lights everywhere from below, from the ceiling. There's like shadows, and like on the, the shadows on all the guys. And then she's like brightly lit from like all angles. But it's like a really cool one. And, and like this is the most, you know, this is the scene from the movie that everybody talks about. So. And uh, this is the one that gets like, this is the one you absorb through cultural osmosis. This is yeah. like, they cut to this. It's like, oh, I know what this is, even if I haven't seen it. She says she didn't tie him up, and she says she didn't kill him because that'd be stupid because she wrote a book about doing the exact same thing. Right. Here in the, in the commentary, Verhoeven has, like, this kind of fun thing where it's like, oh, like, okay, <laughs> like, if, uh, you know, if Esther House points that, like, all these other people are just technicians, like, well, this is what a director adds to the movie. They have a point where she takes off her silk scarf as she's talking about not tying him up, and it's like, oh, that's the scarf, just like the scarf she tied him up with. And then she puts her hands behind her head like they were tied up. And it's like like subtle imagery that's like, okay, she's admitting to the crime with her like like uh her pantomimes and stuff like that. And it's like it's like, is that genius or just accidental? It's like, I don't know, but that's what Verhoeven brings to like to a movie. Yeah, that's why we love it so much. It's like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if it's not in the script and Verhoeven brought that, then that's what you could also uh Esther has well, I guess we'll get to it. Um she admits the drug use and then she asks her have you ever on cocaine nick <laughs> and then this is where she uncrosses her legs and all the guys like get a closer look as she spreads and it just kind of reveals pubic hair but the way people talk about it, it's like she just like it's like spread open her <laughs> it's like here you go guy. <laughs> yeah it's 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 remembered far more dramatically 
than it is because yeah, yeah. it's like oh it's 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 showing pubic hair uh, which is you know for american cinema wide release kind of nuts but yeah. also like no this wasn't like a hustler shoot or something you know <laughs> it was it was no oh, fine and then she just says it's nice to f- on like cocaine and yeah there's a bunch and then of course there's a bunch of like stories and like i don't know which ones are true about this scene but like esther house is like yeah he didn't write that he didn't write that in the screenplay that verhoven and sharon stone came up with it and so he like admits to like the most famous thing about his most successful movie is something he didn't come up with yeah <laughs> Estrow says the way verhoven tells it is that like they they came up with it on the day as like a like kind of like a joke to the crew okay like, just, just just do the scene without panties and then but then sharon stone tells a story basically like they convinced her to take her panties off because they said like because i think she's sitting in a silver chair and they said that like the white panties are reflecting too much so you just need to take them off which seems like a cover because i also at this time like there's a weird thing with like nudity in hollywood where it's like basically if you do nudity it's like the end of your career okay because um, either like pe- either people don't respect you or like you gave them the goods and now they're like now they're bored with it it's like the, there's a lot of weird stuff with it so i think so like i just don't know who to believe like i could see like sharon stone is trying to make like this modest argument that she didn't mean to do that but like she'll take the fame anyways i could also see like she was uh coerced into doing it and then like was edited without her intent verhoven says like every shot she went back to video village and reviewed it and gave it an okay but also like you know video village then was means like they're basically doing vhs tape they're not looking at the raw film they're looking at vhs tape that was like kind of alongside the camera oh okay (laughs) so whatever but this i tend to believe that this was uh constructed and shot this way yeah and then uh, people and i don't think anyone wants to deny it for any other reason just to create mystique around it like oh there's competing stories as to how this happens which makes it more fascinating but it's like yeah these these are you know imaginative creative people kind of getting away with something you know, yeah. winking at the MPA and the American public, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, okay. It's like, ooh, let's create but, mystery. But, but I don't know. The, I mean, the argument now would be like, was she taken advantage of? And it's probably like, well, the stories I heard about Hollywood back then, absolutely. But she it was to her benefit, which doesn't excuse it. But they they all made the movie, so they all yeah. agreed to it. So. And then uh, Curran is asking her questions for a bit, and then she's like asking questions back. It's uh, that's suggesting that she knows that she knows nick uh but uh she but she denies that she doesn't know it's like oh no we've never met before but even though you know later on she sees like she's doing like deep research on him yeah the deepest research the legalist research (laughs) then she basically makes him like if you think i'm lying give me a lie detector test and so she takes a lie detector test and passes it the technician's like you can't beat the machine but uh curran's like says he knows people can bleep can can beat the machine and they're like oh i'm guessing he beat the machine yeah because <laughs> he still don't know like all of his like his dark past that has not been revealed yet so uh, we're like well he's being a cop right now so must everything must went okay even though he's still being like reviewed psychologically every day <laughs> yeah uh curran drives Catherine home he tells her that he passed the lie detector test about shooting two people she doesn't reveal like how he passed it i don't know if he was like because she intimates later on that he was on cocaine when he shot them. So I was like, oh, does cocaine get you past the, the, the lie detector test? Well, according to the CIA, 
yeah, just a good night's sleep and not using stimulants like caffeine the next day, you'll do fine. <laughs> now, cocaine is a mega stimulant. Yeah. But. I don't, but also it's about like, it's about, because what I know about lie detectors is like you establish a baseline and the, like what you go outside the baseline kind of mean like possibly untruthful or other reasons you'd be like having a reaction so if your baseline is erratic as hell then like maybe that would be a good cover (laughs) well i've Uh, heard that like how that works crudely is that uh, there is some kind of like natural social thing we're raised with from being children as, as like lying is bad which would cause an elevation in heart rate and breathing which they would detect as like you said outside the baseline but if you're just a complete psychopath or, you know, you, you, you depend on lies and live in a world of lies, it's, yeah, you're going to pass that thing every time. Yeah. Lie yeah, detectors this- are ways to catch poor people and get them to confess <laughs> the things. Because as soon as if I was accused of something and the police were like, well, we need you to take a lie detector. I'd be like, lawyer, lawyer, <laughs> I'm done, lawyer, which is how you beat. But that's I'm- how you beat the lie detector test <laughs> in real life. You say lawyer. <laughs> Yo, I'm not sure if it's like even admissible anymore. No, it's, it's like a tool that's hanging around. It's bogus. Uh, I mean, there are like legitimate uses to it, but it's just like it's it's not objectively true. Yeah. Uh, well, it also doesn't work. Like you know, it's you have to phrase the questions a certain way, and yeah. Well, I, oh, I remember I saw something where it showed how like they showed a map to somebody and have all the coordinates labeled by numbers, and basically. By how somebody reacted to it, they were able to like pin down like where something was in the, in the map coordinates. Oh, okay, um, I could see that. But that wasn't like it didn't I mean it was true. It just like helped them. <laughs> like okay, right. now we narrowed down our search area to like a mile wide rather than like ten miles wide. Yeah, now we got to get the evidence in this area and associate <laughs> it with him somehow. Yeah, yeah, but this was still back in the day when the lie detector tech detector test was just bulletproof in the in hollywood cinema yeah <laughs> it's like it proved everything <laughs> you know because they'd, they'd have you know lie detector tests are still used on like weird talk shows you know when they're exploiting poor people with weird stories <laughs> sexual peccadillos <laughs> yeah yeah so. and then we have a uh, current goes back to a cop bar and he orders a drink breaking his sobriety current is suspicious of all the people that have died in her life and so dr garner shows back up in the background and then we have a fellow cop is harassing current calling him a calling him shooter yep and they start to have an argument and then uh current leaves with dr garner they go back to her place they have like a weird shove up against the wall foreplay yeah <laughs> uh the sex gets rough and dr garner's like screaming no but then she like submits to it uh, and there's also there's like an aerobics class in the background yeah. across the way. Yeah, there's always like people dancing and j- jumping around in the <laughs> apartment across the way from her. Which I thought it would be like a weird like like reveal. Like as people get uncomfortable as they're just watching people have sex during their aerobic session. But that never happens. But That would be great like if they're just like you see the aerobics and it cuts to the sex. And then you cut back and like out of frame, you can see the whole aerobics class has stopped and they're all just staring out the window. <laughs> It's like because nobody has curtains in movies, uh, unless they have like pol- unless they they both have opposite polarized windows, but uh, we wouldn't be able to see out them anyway. Yeah, <laughs> it's post sex, and Doctor Garner says she knew Catherine in college, and she's worried, and but she's worried about the rough sex they just had, and then Curran gets a cigarette, breaking another sobriety. Yes, 
then they find that there, uh, a professor that Catherine had was killed with an ice pick while Catherine was in college. <laughs> yeah, again, not suspicious. <laughs> yeah, this is yeah. Th- these are the parts of the story where it's like I know they're what they're trying to string together, but it's like oh wow, we just straight on the nose. I don't know. It's like also sometimes this is modern day stuff. Like if you had to like look up all this stuff back then, you'd have to go to like so many different libraries and actually like call people up. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas like nowadays it's a Google search. <laughs> so it's like this movie cannot exist nowadays. <laughs> it can only exist in these times. Catherine drives away somewhere. Curran gives chase. Uh, they're they're like on a curvy road in a valley somewhere. Curran nearly runs into a truck. He like reacquires the car in front of a small house. It's yeah. I said yeah. That house is probably worth millions now. Yeah. Uh, so what she she's driving like a Lotus a Spirit Turbo or Lotus something? Esprit Turbo. Yes. Okay. Very um, fast car for that. James Bond drove a white car like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. But she has another car in her driveway, which I think is just a white version of this car. I'm, I'm not sure. No, it's a Lamborghini. Um, oh, is it? Uh, which one? It's not a Testarossa, but it's, uh, yeah, it's one of the, maybe it's is a it California Spider. No, not the oh, Diablo. Oh, okay. And then Curran stakes the place out till night, and Catherine leaves the house with, like, an older woman. But then Catherine leaves alone, and then she speeds away from Curran again. He goes back to her place. He watches her undress through a window, which is kind of the like the only like pubic hair thing mentioned in the script. He talks about like this is like the thing you put in the script, and it's like no, the most famous pubic hair was the interrogation scene. <laughs> and then uh, Kern's looking up the record of the woman Catherine visited. Her name's Hazel Dopkins. I don't. I, I didn't write down the actor, but she was like an older actress, and like, and she's like credited. Like in like immediately in the end credits <laughs> where it says like with and it's like her name. So I didn't know if it was supposed to be like something where it's like, oh, she's been a lot of famous stuff. Uh, you should know her. But like I didn't recognize most. I mean, it's like some of her filmography. It's like, OK, I recognize that title, but I don't like her. I didn't really recognize. Yeah, um, it's, I looked her up. She was in a lot of she was in a lot of older movies. But yeah, I didn't. None of them stood. I thought she was like a maybe a player from. uh like some Hitchcock movies, but no. Yeah, no. And so Hazel Dawkins was arrested for homicide in 1956. Yeah, the, she uh, wiped out her family with a knife. Yeah, killed, yeah, killed her husband and her two kids with a knife. Um, the dead professor was Catherine's counselor in college. That was gonna be, that was gonna make that seem like a big thing in movies where it's like the counselor from like high school or college, like. I've like I've met like I've had counselors through college. I've met with them like five times my entire life. Right. <laughs> you set up your schedule with your counselor. They don't do anything. <laughs> I mean, it's not to discount their work, but it's like counselors aren't really like day to day with with all the with the ever with everybody. Yeah, but <laughs> you're like, not an early twenties hottie either. You know, maybe yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe they get a little closer with that. Who knows? They never saw potential in me, so. <laughs> so the next day Curran meets with Catherine he sees she has like even more articles about him uh, and she's using him as like her basis for the detective in her next book uh, she's using an ice pick to break up ice cubes is that is that how they used to store like ice cubes back in the day like you just got a big chunk of it and you broke it up on an ice pick uh, the thing with that that from what I understand is like you get distilled water or spring water and you freeze it in like a cube and then you stab it up with an ice pick to break it up because you don't want to use tap water because if you're mixing it with whiskey or whatever, whatever treatment chemicals they use for the water will, like, make the whiskey taste off. 
So that's why you have big chunks of ice with like, you know, deadly ice picks. And it's also kind of stylish and cool, but you, uh, yeah, that, that's what the, what that's all about. Okay. Um, At least in my adventures in whiskey culture, it's like, yeah, you never use tap water. Really? My answer is like, never put ice in it. It's like, you don't need it. It's good enough on its own, but. Or chill the whiskey. Uh, that's maybe that's probably some sort of bad thing too. I don't know much about alcohol. Yeah, I just room temperature is fine for me. Uh, yeah, she says he had four shootings in five years. That but he says they're all like drug deals while he was working under cover. Uh, she calls him shooter, which he thought was just an internal thing with the police. So now he's like, like, how'd you know that? <laughs> she. Uh, uh, she asked them how much coke did he did he do when he shot the tourist. I, I, I think I'm forgetting a joke here. I think there's a point where she like walks away and she goes, "Do you have any coke?" And then she's like, kind of like, he knows she means drugs, but then she's also holding the the whiskey and he's uh, and he's like, um, "No, but there's a Pepsi in the fridge." <laughs> it's like, uh, the, 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 you know, we all know there's a difference. <laughs> or something like that. I don't know. This is like another thing where it's like Joe Astros. It seems like the way Hollywood, especially worked back then, was you, you just have drinking buddies. Like talent doesn't matter. It's just all sex and drinking buddies. Yep. So <laughs> that's really what life is. <laughs> Catherine keeps moving in closer to like to his face to kiss him, but it's like it's they really like don't kiss for a really long time, but just kind of like hover. And then uh, she says them about like. I think she says something like is that why your why your wife killed herself or something like that and then Catherine's girlfriend buddy roxy shows up and makes out with uh with her as as curran leaves yeah and then you have curran goes to the dr garner's office to violently accuse her of letting someone read her his file and she says like that would break the client confidentiality but it's like you know that doesn't matter in this movie yeah, <laughs> yeah you're already sleeping with her so it's like okay uh, but then she caves in and says that she gave it to to Nilsson, who's like the like the head internal affairs guy. Yeah. Curran goes over to Nilsson and accuses him of like being bribed for the file. Also here on the like one of the IA guys is is Mitch Pelegi, who was Skinner in the X Files. Yeah, it's like oh Mitch Pelegi, yeah, I recognize him. Isn't he the one who puts uh, the gun to Curran's head and is like back off? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which just like seems a little like hardcore in a police station. So I'm not sure was X Files out at this time. I don't know. That's a good question. This is '92. I thought like X Files came out like '91 or something. But I well, let remember. me look it up while you talk. Well, it was just funny because like, oh yeah, that guy, and then you know, look it up, and then, like his character's name is literally like internal affairs detective. He doesn't yep. even have a name. '93. <laughs> '93. Okay. Okay. So this is before that. All right. Uh, Moran tries to calm down Curran. As he's like leaving the precinct angry, Dr. Garner shows up at Curran's house and he's getting drunk. And then Curran pisses her off and she like weirdly attacks him or like her lips all get like weirdly and she's like, Yeah. <laughs> like, and she like tries to hit him, but it's like super weird. Uh, and yeah, then she this leaves. This is a mind bending performance I was talking about. <laughs> Um, she leaves. He goes to sleep, you know, sleep off the booze. Uh, and then Curran gets a call at night while he's watching Hellraiser. <laughs> it's weird. I like the movies in the background that are always going on in this. We got like, like the Jeffersons. The Jeffersons. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we just Which drunk. I have not, 
which I have no idea. Like, what's the Verhoeven effect on that? Like, what deep meaning does that have? Like, I have no idea. <laughs> here it's pretty. Uh, here they even say in the commentary, it's just like it's supposed to be like he's having a nightmare. So they just have like a a thing on the television that just represents a nightmare. So <laughs> that's pretty straightforward. <laughs> so he's off to another crime scene. They find out it's like Nilsson, the the head eternal affairs guy, is shot dead in an alleyway. Uh, Moran says he was shot up close with a 38. And then, uh, so here's some gun guy stuff. <laughs> then Lieutenant Walker wants Nick's gun because he's suspicious. And so he hands him a, a nine millimeter yeah, Glock, Glock 17. Nine millimeter, yeah. <laughs> which is not, absolutely not the same gun. <laughs> Actually, a 38 and a nine millimeter, though, are metric in English measurements are almost equivalent. Yeah, but. But they have very different characteristics. <laughs> yeah. And Walker smells the gun and walks away with it. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was... I thought smelling the gun meant something else at first. It's like, oh, no, they just don't know what the hell they're doing. It's <laughs> just one of those Glocks that converts into a revolver. It's a Glock that has that's fed with uh, rimmed cartridges. Yep. <laughs> it's fine, but it's one of those things where it's like, oh, those don't... But I thought, like, oh, but you could... There was like a way you could play it off where it made sense, but then like it doesn't matter. It's just they just throw they're just throwing some buzzwords out there, so that's fine. So, Curran's being interviewed. Doctor Garner gives Curran an alibi, albeit like it's kind of distorted, because she says like, "Yeah, he was just watching TV." You know, I mean, he was like drunk and like they were like half fighting, <laughs> and she was the one instigating the fight. Yeah, <laughs> that gets all left out. Uh, Curran lights a cigarette and gives the same line Catherine did. Where it's like, what are you gonna do? Arrest me for smoking? Which is like the kind of the fun thing about the screenplay, where it just like it basically just takes these moments and then just reassembles them with different characters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it establishes that Catherine like is having influence over everyone. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. like, oh, they're using her lines. They're you know, mo modeling their behavior after her. She's like, enticing and enthralling people. Yeah, she's corrupting everything. Yeah, and so they put current current on leave. And then, like, as, like, the leaving Curran thanks Garner for, like, covering for him and kisses her on the way out. And then we have Curran packing up his desk, but on his way out, he asks Sam about the uh, boat accident with Catherine's parents, and they find out that the boat blew up, but there was, like, $5 million each on, like, death insurance on the parents. Yeah. Um, which doesn't seem like a that would be, like, a... Because she ends up getting, like, $100 million anyways. I don't know what an extra 10 really matters, but... <laughs> Let's just pay the taxes on that house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Curran goes home and Catherine's waiting by. She's always just waiting somewhere in other people's houses, her house, whatever. You know, yeah, there's no, there. like, everyone just walks into everyone's house here and is waiting for him. It's like, yeah, the unstable cop with a coke problem that's, like, killed five people in as many years. Let's go hide in the dark at his house and see what happens. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, especially since he started drinking again yeah <laughs> she asked why gus doesn't like her uh there's no answer for that but that's just a kind of a thing put there where it's like oh no it's like gus is gonna die because he's the only person that's honest in this whole movie <laughs> um, they kind of had a like a weird diversion there well see gus is fat and he's jealous because you're <laughs> never gonna have sex with him like they could have just had a whole like yeah just moment like that it's like yeah you know he loves his pizza hut and you know it's <laughs> He's a cowboy. He's a California cowboy. Curran <laughs> uh, asks her in for a drink. Curran's breaking ice with an ice pick, and then she takes over, and then 
she starts breaking the ice ice. Oh, this is the joke where they do it with like, do you have any Coke? And then he says, oh, I got his Pepsi. Okay. Yeah. Here comes trying to be like unpredictable, unpredictable to mess with Catherine's game. So he's like trying to like, instead of like, he's, he's basically trying to turn into the skid with what he's doing here. <laughs> it's like, all right, let's do the opposite. See what happens. And then Catherine gives uh, him a, a book of hers about a child who kills their parents to see if they can get away with it. Um, and then Curran asked her about her new book and she responds by saying it's practically writing itself. Yeah. And then, uh, Moran shows up and he wants some pizza, <laughs> uh, specifically pizza. Hut, you know? yep. I don't know if that's a product placement. I don't know why this movie would get product placements. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> hey, you want an extra $50,000? Oh yeah. We can put some more blood in the scene or something. Yeah. <laughs> We can flip that expensive. We can build a dummy car to, so we don't actually flip a Lotus Spree over, and you know. <laughs> then we cut to it's some church that's converted into a rave club. Yep. <laughs> Favorite uh, scene of the is, movie coming up here. <laughs> this is Boz's club. The guy who gets killed in the beginning, and then Kern shows up to watch Catherine. He finds her in the men's room where she's doing coke, and the men's room is just—it's huge and it's just full of everybody. Men, women, whatever. Yeah, everyone, guys making out with each other. It's it's like a yeah. it's like a, the scene that everyone in Middle America imagines like San Francisco is every day. Yeah, and maybe it is. I don't know because I'm from Middle America. I've never been to San Francisco, <laughs> yeah. so it might really be that way. For all I know, I'm sure somebody's life is like that, but it's not. It's not outrageously common. Yeah, yeah. They find yeah, they find her in the men's room doing coke, and then she like closes the bathroom door. But then they cut to the dance scene and. Then, Catherine's dancing and kissing with Roxy, and then Catherine starts dancing with Curran. Like I said, favorite kind of... scene of the movie here. Very effective <laughs> scene. It just, you know, because sometimes when they do sex and, and sexy behavior in movies, I laugh because it's like, well, that's just weird. That just wouldn't yeah. work. But the way they film this, and you know, with the girlfriend doing like uh, the weird dance with the guy where she's always looking at him, yeah. and she's like <laughs> grinding against, uh, you know, uh michael douglas it's like oh this is a excellence with the music it's an excellence yeah. my favorite scene in the movie I mean, it's like wow yeah I think, I, it seemed like very modern because i i i because like i got sort of like imagine like a rave scene that i think of like in the matrix and this is like seven years before that yeah. it was <laughs> uh, a lot of french like, uh what was that music because i looked up the music it's like it's like a french music i think french house music or yeah. early i don't think they called it that then but you know yeah I also love that there's just a giant lighting rig spinning around. It's like that seems like an accident waiting to happen, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure like Gon Debat's like, oh, man, I gotta get this thing. It's so cool, but like, it's like, yeah, but we can't hide in the scene. He's <laughs> just being like, don't hide it. <laughs> Have it there. It's a wild club. <laughs> uh, I think there's also they shot this on a set, so that wasn't some because I would believe in San Francisco there would be some church that would convert it into a nightclub, but. Uh, they they built that as a set. So. Oh, okay. That's a very that's a European thing too. I've heard uh, a lot yeah. a lot of churches in Europe got converted into nightclubs, car dealerships, all that. Because oh yeah, well yeah, because like everything's so crowded in Europe, you can't just you can't just tear things down and build something new. You just have to convert things. <laughs> right. Because otherwise, they would just like complete upended cities and built like roadways you could actually drive a car through. But like no, those cities aren't really built for cars but like they also have you know public transportation so you know yeah it's a give and take 
but yeah, they also don't have supermarkets. You got to go to like 40 different little smaller markets and take it home on your little bike with a bell on it. Yep. It's great life. Well, thank God I have groceries for the next hour and a half. Yeah. <laughs> One meal down. <laughs> Two more to go. <laughs> uh so yeah we have a we have a sex scene at Catherine's place um i think this is at the house not the beachside resort nick starts noticing similarities between like the opening crying scene but you know he keeps having sex anyway so. yeah <laughs> it's just too good it's like oh it's, yeah. am i gonna get a nice pick shoved in my neck i don't care uh she scrapes his back and draws blood like she has like razor sharp claws on her on her fingertips that's a nice touch and then she reaches under a pillow for a silk scarf and then ties his hands to the bed, just like the opening scene. Uh, and it sounds like uh, Curran's screaming no. Uh, and then she, it looks like she's like reaching for the ice pick, but then but she ends up not killing him. She kind of like thrusts herself on him, but she does not. It's just herself. There's no ice pick. And so, but the tension's there that she was going to kill him. And then after sex, Curran goes to the bathroom while Catherine's sleeping. And Roxy shows up and says she'll kill him if he doesn't leave Catherine alone. Uh, and Curran's like, let me ask you, Roxy, man to man. <laughs> like, I think she's the f of the century. What do you think? <laughs> Which that's the kind of dialogue you think. Like, yeah, that's what <laughs> people are bought in at that point with all the ridiculous dialogue in here before. It's like, yeah, people don't talk like that. But it's like, it's like, so, but you wish that at one point somebody did. So here you get it. <laughs> yeah, this is what you've been um, waiting for. <laughs> but then Roxy reveals that Catherine likes her to watch her have sex with like other men or women yeah uh, so then that like kind of reveals like oh people that you know that's close to her are she's manipulating them too so like nobody gets a free pass everybody gets manipulated so. right next day Curran wakes up he kind of like wakes up in like a moment of terror <laughs> like ah! <laughs> uh, and there's a note on the bed that says like the beach and so he goes out to Catherine's beach estate um Catherine tells him he's in and over his head uh, but uh, Curran promised to catch her while he also wants to f her. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to catch you, but I'm still going to have sex with you. Yeah, I just want to work a few more in before we slap the cuffs on <laughs> for, for real. Remember, I'm on leave, and this is extra bad. <laughs> yeah, this is like career-ending stuff right here. Right? <laughs> it's like go-to-prison stuff, colluding with a murderer. Well, I'll either catch you and uh, and uh, increase my status at the police department, or we end up together and I can just use your money. <laughs> it's a win-win. <laughs> then we cut to some Western bar where M Moran's hanging out, and he's drinking. He's in, like, cowboy uniform, but he's just drinking alone. But he, Moran says he's been looking for for uh, Curran because he's been gallivanting around having sex with Catherine. He hasn't been home or anywhere else. And then Moran's extra angrily. He figures out, he's like, oh, you've been her haven't you <laughs> god damn it what are you doing because <laughs> uh, he's like the audience surrogate who's like hey this doesn't make any sense yeah this is like really destructive behavior and then they go to like a, a like a diner next door and moran's like swearing and eating and making people uncomfortable in the in the diner and so that but they he says they found a safety deposit box that nilson had that had like 50 grand inside right but they said it's it's been there for three months and that like Curran didn't know Catherine three months ago. And Curran wants to drive Moran home because he's drunk, but he's he's like, ah, it's okay. You know, early 90s. So <laughs> He's driving a big Cadillac, too. 
Hey, yeah, he just ate, so you know. Yeah, he's got, he's got some weight on him, so yeah, he's, he's straight as a die, before you know. Uh, so he leaves. Then we see C- Catherine's car is following Curran, uh, it runs him over, then takes off. Curran gets in his car and gives chase. This is like like a really cool. Because, you know, there's, uh, people always point out, like, Bullet, it's like the ultimate chase movie, especially in San Francisco. So this was like a cool chase that was different. Yeah. Race, the movie that takes place in San Francisco. It was a lot of pillars and, like, strange. <laughs> looks like a, like a wharf they're driving around in. Or he's driving up just, like, the stairs of some weird, like, like wiggly san francisco road yeah he's driving up the stairs to cut her off which by the way would have ripped the suspension out from underneath a fox body mustang pretty, <laughs> pretty quickly but you know for a movie it's cool oh yeah he's, yeah he's got the fox body mocks which like at the time i hated those because the bumpers just made them look stupid but the aftermarkets they've had those those cars look really cool nowadays oh yeah <laughs> and you can shove big engines in those too. they're <laughs> yeah. they're, they're it's a Framed that full frame vehicle. They they said Michael Douglas did a lot of his own driving for the okay. movies. That was kind of interesting. I guess he does race car stuff. Yeah, yeah. And 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 I guess he had to do a lot of his own stunt driving for uh, a cop show he was in the seventies called The Streets of San Francisco. Yep, I remember that one. <laughs> yeah. So he gives chase. The cars end up playing chicken, and Curran wins, and the 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 wins. Lotus. <laughs> The car like flies off an embankment. Uh, he goes down there, and it's Roxy was in the car, and now she's dead. Yeah, you kind of uh, figured that's who it was. Yeah, especially once the car gets wrecked, it's like, well, Catherine can't be in there. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be too easy. <laughs> uh, then we have Curran is arguing with Walker because like the the cops are now at the scene. And he's just like, "Why are you anywhere? And you're, why are you connected with these people? All oh, what's going on here? This is all weird. Everything's screwed up." And so. <laughs> Uh, I have that being the end of Act 2. <laughs> so in Act 3, we have Curran's getting a psych evaluation by a pain psychologist, including Dr. Gardner. Uh, it doesn't go well. He just like tells him to f*** off and goes out and leaves. Yeah, because the first thing they say, we hear you're having a problem with hostility. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> f*** you. Basically answers a bunch of questions without them asking it. It's like, yeah, this is all you, all you, all you head shrinkers. This is all you want. <laughs> What was your childhood like? I jerked <laughs> off more than I can remember. Uh, he leaves, and Dr. Garter suspects he's sleeping with Catherine. And then Curran goes back to Catherine's beach house, and then she's rocking back and forth and crying, and then she says, everyone I care about dies. He, like, consoles her, and then she, with tears in her eyes, says, make love to me. And so they have sex again, of course. Of course. <laughs> And then immediately after this, she's not crying anymore. So it's like, oh, yeah, this meant nothing to her. Yeah. <laughs> this is all manipulation. <laughs> she's getting good practice in of, like, feigning emotions, though. So. Yeah. Well, that's what's weird about her character is, like, you, 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 it's like, you know it's fake, but you still go along with it because <laughs> she's so compelling. Uh, she mentioned something about Lisa Oberman. Yeah, she seems over the death of Roxy. Uh, Kern's back at the precinct. They... They have Mary Pat Gleason, another character actor. She's been in hundreds of things, which I, I had like a, a short moment. It's like, are they going to stick them together with with, Mer, with Moran? It's like, ah, you fat people should be together. Yeah. <laughs> Go slap ham. Come on. <laughs> I'll wait. I'm going to have some of this terrible coffee. Uh, 
but she's like a juvenile like a detention officer or something like that and so after roxy died there was like her records got released and it showed that she killed her two brothers when she was a teenager yeah um like knifing them to death yeah and because of this like like Curran's now like wavering on whether Catherine actually did all these murders or not, or if it was just Roxy the whole time. Curran goes to Berkeley. He's looking for Lisa Oberman, but the name doesn't come up. You go back to Catherine's. He meets Hazel. Catherine tells him that like he misheard her and that he's looking for a Liz Hoberman. And then Curran gets Sam to look up the records. And, and the, here's where we find out that Lisa Hoberman is Dr. Garner. Yeah, which I saw coming like a million miles away. Yeah. yeah. Which is another thing, like, because when they have pictures of Roxy, like, I, was, I thought for a second there, it was like, is that just a picture of Dr. Garner? So there might be a whole thing to this where, like, everybody trying to look like Catherine. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, the, all the people in her web just want to start looking like her. Yeah. I was waiting to see, like, Nick show up in a blonde wig. It's like, whoa. <laughs> I'm trying something. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, which could be. I heard. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't get this in the autobiography. I heard there's a rumor, or not a rumor, but somebody said that the original, the current character was originally supposed to be a female character, and it was supposed to be like more explicitly bisexual for the the lead character. Oh, okay. Michael Douglas. <laughs> Michael Douglas didn't want to. Didn't agree to do anything bisexual in the movie. So. <laughs> I couldn't imagine him doing that. <laughs> Uh, and Curran confronts Dr. Garner about her connection with Catherine. <laughs> yeah, I hear she has a really good line. She's like, what am I supposed to say to you guys? Hey, I'm not gay, but I did f*** your suspect. <laughs> yeah, that was a pretty good line. <laughs> and then he, like, leaves angry, and then she's, like, yelling, and she has another line where he's like, she's evil, she's brilliant, which is a ridiculous line, but it's fun, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Curran goes home with, and Catherine's waiting again. Yeah. Uh, say, saying she has a surprise for him, and she asks if he still thinks she's the killer. He says no. She calls him a liar. <laughs> so she leaves. Curran goes looking for records on Lisa Hoberman. Uh, Nilsson, he but he's like going to like the San Francisco Police Department, but like they don't have the file because Nilsson got it like a year earlier. So now the now the file is just in the wind somewhere because Nilsson's dead. Curran uh, and Marin. Marin argue about like the case on the dock moran is the only one that sees things objectively <laughs> Curran goes back to his apartment Catherine bought him a plant which i, I don't know what to make about that <laughs> yeah what does that mean <laughs> look at the evil i'm growing inside your apartment <laughs> they make out and have sex again Curran goes to the hospital dr garner used to work at and they're looking for her ex-husband to find out that he's dead and he was shot by a 38 one day just randomly and uh, here we have a, it's a character actor jack mcgee who's been under the things he's the sheriff yeah <laughs> and he, he's the one telling uh current current this and then uh the sheriff says nilson was down there a year ago asking the same questions uh but he mentions that dr garner had a girlfriend presumably Catherine, but i don't know current goes to Catherine's beach house where she's printing up her new book called shooter yep <laughs> Uh, Catherine says goodbye to to Curran because her book is done. So now that the, now she's just like a she's not like she's very she want, cold. Yeah, just, yeah, just absolutely rejects him, and so he's he's pissed off about that. Hazel shows up there too, and Catherine leaves with her. Uh, it's nighttime now. Remember what he sees in the printing off, though. Yeah, yeah, that plays a part later. Yeah, well, there's a mo yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get yeah. we'll get into it shortly. Let's say. Uh, Curran feels rejected. So Moran picks him up because he got he's got a, a lead on an old college roommate. 
Boz shared an office space with Dr. Garner. Moran goes into the apartment by himself because he says that like he's on leave, that Curran's on leave, so he can't go up there with him. This is like one of the greatest suspense things <laughs> here. The elevator, he he, pit, he hits floor four, and like the elevator stops at every floor, and there's like nobody out there. Yeah, and it's a great, it's like it's just it's excellent suspense because you're like every time it happens, like what's gonna happen? Because something has to happen. Yeah, this isn't being done for no reason. <laughs> we've got three tries and i'm not sure if it was a real elevator or if they did like the fun trick where they just it's just an elevator door that opens and closes it doesn't actually move and i think they just like move sets around as they open and close the doors really fast probably <laughs> it's probably easier to film that way because elevators are really small inside so yeah well, i remember there was a fun thing in one of the uh oh, i think it was in good night good luck or something there was like there's one of the george clooney movies where they filmed in an elevator and like they get on one floor and then the elevator, you know, presumably goes up and they get out on a different floor. And all they did is that like it's on a set. They they get in the elevator, they rotate it three hundred and sixty degrees, and there's a different set on the other side of them. <laughs> that's fun. Or not or not three sixty one eighty. Yeah. Uh but yeah, that's yeah, it's, it's cool Hollywood tricks. Because how would you know? <laughs> yeah. And yeah, this is where I like Kern maybe sees something and he runs after him moran i think he's in danger and this is where that thing that was printing up comes in mind because like in the because i i like i kept re rewinding it and it's like what does he see and he doesn't see anything so very in the commentary very often says like uh it's when he was reading out her book as it's printing it's explaining exactly what's happening in this scene and that's why he makes him go like oh no <laughs> i've read this before uh say so he goes he goes running up the stairs trying to stop what will happen uh, the elevator door opens and he get and Moran gets stabbed with an ice pick, you know, very like like thirty seven times or something. Yeah, by a blonde. Uh, yeah, and then uh, Curran shows up just in time for as he dies as he bleeds out. He grabs um uh Moran's Glock and he starts looking for the killer. And then Doctor Garner pops up saying she got a message to meet Moran here. And then Curran shoots Garner. She reaches in her pocket. But they were just keys that were in her pocket, uh, which, it just, which it was just Bart Simpson on a key ring. Yeah, yeah. Which they, they very explicitly point out earlier in the film, so you know it's like, oh, it's just keys. <laughs> it's not a gun. And then, like as she dies, she says, "I love you." So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> make it extra, make him extra feel guilty. So, and uh, yeah, we cut to it's like the cops are going over the crime scene. They find a wig, an SFPD jacket, and an ice pick in like the stairwell. Because they're all like, "What's going on here? Why is he, like why are you the only one alive and everybody else is dead?" So, but now they're searching Doctor Garner's apartment and they find the, the thirty-eight that killed her ex-husband and a bunch of photos showing that she's obsessed with Catherine. Now they're at the precinct. The cops are putting it all together with a bunch of information, and basically they have it like, "Okay, it's slam dunk. It's uh, it's Doctor Garner that that killed everybody," and then Cap Captain Telcott tells him, "Congratulations." Yeah. And then <laughs> for what? I'm not then, sure. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. He's not. Yeah. He is not uh, relieved at all by that. <laughs> that statement. Curran uh, goes back home. Catherine's there, of course, in his apartment. Uh, Catherine says she doesn't want to lose him. They have sex again because of poor, of course. Yeah. Uh, it seems very manipulative. They, they do another stabbing fake out where she like leans, arches back and then looks like she's reaching for something. But you know, she doesn't stab him. After sex, she says, like, what are we going to do? And then Cran gives, like, a line that Moran, like, used. This is the second time that 
that Kern uses it. He says like, she goes like, "What are we gonna do?" And he goes, F- "Like minks, minks raise rugrats and live happily ever after." Uh, and then she says he hates she hates rugrats. So then he alters it to say like, "No rugrats." And you see her hand like reaching for something, but they don't show anything. There's another stabbing fake out. <laughs> they fade out, but it fades back in. <laughs> and then the camera like uh, tra- or tilts and tracks underneath the bed to show that there is an ice pick there. And that's the end of the movie. And that's it. Weird. Highly suggesting movie. that she did all the murders. Yeah, that's the thing you don't know. But yeah, this was a this was a a good like. That's yeah, a it's a erotic thriller. Yeah, yeah. it's a good one of those. Yeah, I don't. They don't really do like these those. anymore. So yeah, yeah, no one does this. Well, no one has sex anymore. Everyone's all freaked out all the time. <laughs> but this was a hugely successful movie. Oh yeah, it's made a lot of money. Um, this was. Paul Verhoeven's most successful movie. Uh, domestically, it's beat out by Total Recall by like a couple million, but like worldwide, uh, Basic Instinct beats it by like like ninety million or something like that. Yeah. So this this was his his biggest movie. And it's also like a weird. I guess that's not weird, but like I was trying to think of like because if I when I look at the 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 movies of this year, there's a lot of like either like strong female leads or just like female oriented casts. Yeah. I was like, I was like, is that something to do with like Terminator one where it's like, we have a strong female lead. So then like now everybody's doing it, but because movies take like almost like two or three years to make, like I doubt that's the case, but this is all happenstance. So I'm looking at a box office list, but here's strong, (laughs) strong women characters in movies of this year. So we have, this is a box office one. So top one's Batman Returns. So we have Michelle Pfeiffer, Batwoman. Um, yeah, that was that was a big movie for her, um, but she turned down this movie, <laughs> right? Although it seemed like a lot of people turned down this movie because they didn't want to do the nudity. So then we have Sister Act. Oh, okay. Um, we got Wayne's World, which has a strong. You know, I always remember Tia Carrera in that. She, you know, she has a band. She does her own thing. She's cool. Of course, Basic Instinct. We have a League of Their Own. Hand that rocks the cradle. There's a hand that rocks the cradle. I'm talking about like kind of like. Female cast movies are strong female characters for this year. Yeah. Uh, we got Fried Green Tomatoes. Oh, this year? Huh, okay. Got Death Becomes Her. You got Alien 3. Uh, you got My Cousin Vinny. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and I looked up who won the Best Actress Award this year, and it was Emma Thompson for Howard's End. So <laughs> I'd never even seen that. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> Single White Female. <laughs> That was the same uh, year? Yeah. Oh, of course, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, you know. Yeah, <laughs> Still I remember gay. that one. <laughs> I got Adam Sandler, you know, Morticia Adams and Wednesday Adams. Um, oh, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> yeah, see, in my um, imagining of a visualization of the gap cycle... Uh, Sharon Stone in this was always my model for Morn Highland under the influence of the zone implant <laughs> because she could be like just super sexual and in control. But then when that's turned off, she just dissolves into this nightmare world that she's in. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, she was always like, yeah, that's what that would be like if someone had some chip in their brain and they were having to just, you know, have sex and do whatever they could to survive. It's like, oh, they this is exactly how they would act. But then like unlike this movie where it's like, oh, this is this woman's goal. It's like, oh, no, you turn the chip off and then you just, you, you know, you're just completely dismantled as a human being because it's horrible <laughs> going on. But 
Yeah, that's an, that's another thing. That, like that's why this movie resonated with me because of stuff like that. It's like when I think of like you know strong you know female leads, like this is the, one of the first ones that comes to mind. It's like yeah, yeah. she's not a good person. She's no. definitely in control. Um, well, there was some, well, yeah, there was uh, some controversies that I don't remember at the time, but like in both the making of thing on the DVD and some stuff in the the book uh, Hollywood Animal, uh, like Glad was really mad at this movie. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, because because yeah, I like you have gay and bisexual characters that are not necessarily like like they're either a victim or they're a murderer. <laughs> so <Huh. laughs> they don't they don't like that. And I can imagine like especially like the year before is Science of the Lambs, it's like, okay, so your your Buffalo Bill seems to be sort of like you could see as like a trans character and also like they're a murderer. It's like, yeah, it's like yeah, all these all the gay characters you create in Hollywood, they're either victims, murderers, or the comic relief. Like, <laughs> so you can understand, like, at the time where they jump on it because it's I'm surprised um, Glad didn't like protest David Lynch's Dune because <laughs> you notice that uh, was not in Paul, uh, Denis Villeneuve's Dune at all, not yet, at least. What's that, Baron Harkonnen? Oh, being this psychotic know. gay character that. You know. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I was supposed to go like, you know, this movie was filmed in San Francisco, so there were protests like outside as they were filming. Oh, yeah. I mean, this, yeah, this resonated a lot more than David Lynch is doing <laughs> in the zeitgeist for sure. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I can understand. And even, but the funny thing is, like, in the book, he talks about how, like, they had a meeting with Glad, and then Esterhaus was actually like, okay, no, you're actually right on some of these points, but I don't think I wrote a homophobic. Uh, screenplay but really the thing is that like they went he but even though he said he would change some things after they talked to him because they thought they made good points Verhoeven didn't want to change a thing. yeah because <laughs> he's like do you know who I am do you know I create positive gay characters and it really doesn't matter to me it's like I am an ally <laughs> and they said like well we never seen any of your movies like well <laughs> well then I'm even less inclined to listen to you <laughs> goodbye <laughs> so yeah yeah uh Verhoeven, uh, basically was like I, I didn't create negative stereotypes for gay characters they just um and like i didn't get that feeling but like you know it, i'm not gay so it doesn't mean that to yeah me, to me. but but i could see how like at the time it's like why is every gay character a murder victim or a murderer because like you could see at the time where it's like you put that out there and it's like oh this is just reinforcing some argument that some christian right-wing christian has where it's like uh, being gay is a bad thing and then it only leads to more bad things and so like you know violence and being gay is intertwined somehow and this movie like puts that forth <laughs> like, oh. even stronger so yeah i mean i guess you could yeah i could i could see that they would think that but i also like i don't really associate this movie with the characters having i don't know like like i never thought it doesn't of the, seem like their sexuality was like not important it's like no this these yeah. are just monsters i mean it doesn't matter <laughs> uh you know the sex is just a tool of manipulation it's just like force yeah. majeure it's how you move pieces around the board it has nothing to do with exploring their sexuality um so i don't i didn't even like i get a vibe that like oh yeah this is a gay character but yeah well and like and how i remember it through like you know through cultural osmosis like i don't remember that being a thing so but uh it's it's a point everywhere. It's, it's like, 
Well, I mean, they went as far as to make like when the movie came out, they made like a a club or whatever that's called like Catherine did it, and they printed up T-shirts to try to like hurt it in the uh, box office. But no, that didn't matter. This is like one of the biggest movies of the year. Yeah, we want to see how Catherine did it and who she did it with and how many times. <laughs> Yeah. Which is crazy because this is like a you know hard R rated movie and it's like one of the box office. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it doesn't happen anymore. Well, Hollywood no. doesn't take chances like this anymore either. No, well, I mean, if it's a R rated movie that makes a lot of money, it's just a big violent action movie, not because there's sex in it. So. Yeah, yeah, no, sex doesn't really. It also seems kind of weird because like you know this is pretty like out there for the time, but like I never saw or read the need of the like. 50 shades of gray but like that has to be tame compared to this movie <laughs> well yeah probably but i don't know also i felt like 50 shades of gray was probably like a movie that like kind of watered down like sdm for like housewives or something or bdsm for housewives <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's what i always thought like that was a that was a those those were check novels for for women who like wanted to fantasize about that but not really like they didn't want to know the blood and guts behind, you know, because <laughs> this is described uh, as like sexually erotic and violent sex. And maybe in 1992, before the Internet was a mainstream thing like it is now, it's like, oh, this is really tame compared to anything you can see on the Internet yeah. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But you also don't see like professional actors doing that either. It's always filmed in someone's basement or something. So <laughs> or pe no, people just shoot it from home. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's, sell, sell it direct to consumer. <laughs> yeah, direct, direct. Farm to table, BDSM. <laughs> so I didn't look up, like, the overall critical response at the time, but I did look up the the, 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 the obvious go-to of, of, of Roger Ebert and Siskel, or yeah. Siskel and Ebert, and uh, they both hated this movie. Yeah. So, but that's, that's not necessarily, you know, they just think it's crass and unhelpful, and they don't care about any of the characters, but, like, I don't know that's the thing with like Verhoeven movies where they like almost none of the characters are likable, but you you still have to like. It's interesting to see them like what they have to deal with is always the interesting thing, not necessarily like, oh, I don't like them now. I don't care what happens to them. That's, but. Well, know. that's that's sort of like the Verhoeven veneer of realism in movies like this that he does that aren't like just science fiction or something. It's like yeah, everyone's flawed. It's just like I'm yeah. putting it on display. There's no, there's not like heroic motivations. Like this is just a situation <laughs> I'm in, and this is how I deal with it. And and of course, it's yeah, it's all over the top sexuality and stuff. And it's like yeah, that's, but that's what you're expecting. But I mean, also like this, like Verhoeven, like you know, I'm exposing the truth. It's like yeah, these things don't exactly happen, but they happen in your head. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like conceivable all this stuff could happen, but it's also like. You know, most people are flawed like they lie to their wife or they, you know, maybe spent more money than they said they did. Not they, you know, it's like I had sex with three women in this really violent, weird way. And it's like, yeah, it's, and that happens, but it doesn't, uh, I don't know. It's, it's kind of like all his movies, there's no like intersection of normal life. Like everyone's nuts from the, you know, as soon as the pistol's fired, it's like everyone's, yeah, from the starting line, nuts. Uh, it's just how can we film it and make it interesting? And most people are too tired to be this erotic in real life. It's <laughs> like I did just put a TV dinner in, you know. It's so so it's fascinating to see, um, yeah. At that time, there's probably still a place for this genre, but 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I pro- yeah, the probably stuff exists. It's just smaller. Yeah, it's just as again, it's not my cup of tea. But this one actually, I enjoyed a lot, just mainly based on it's like, oh, this movie looks beautiful, and there's yeah, some the really te- cool... technically it's incredibly well done. Yeah, and it's got so many memorable scenes in it, even though it's technically probably on some level, it's not a good story or anything. No, like that, no, no, but... no, it's not. <laughs> But it's exciting. But it's the style. It's always the style. That I will always go style over substance on things. That's when I start to forgive all the mistakes that I know are there. But it's like, and this was never, a, you know, if I was ever making movies, this wouldn't be like my, my genre of pick. No. But it's like, it's still kind of cool. And what's but, cool I mean, about it, Verhoeven is he's all over the map. With I mean, this is the guy who did RoboCop, for God's sake. <laughs> he did this. And it's like they're both good in their own yeah. ways. They both had a great style, um, and a look and a feel that you don't forget. Some of the stuff from the the animal Hollywood animal book is, oh yeah, there's a phrase they kept using when they when they were working on Jagged Edge. Like, basically, the producers came with him with the movie. It's like we want a blood and hair on the wall picture. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like okay. that's how they kept referring to it. Uh, there's also some weird stuff for the producers not wanting Glenn Close in the movie because they thought her ass was too big. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, I guess she was just ahead of her time. <laughs> yeah, she's yeah, it's future, future ass. <laughs> oh yeah, there's a there was a crazy thing in here because it's like, it's like late '80s or mid to late '80s. He's working on this movie because he notices like even in California where it's like super liberal, he's like noticing a fringe of like like white nationalism popping up and so he writes this movie called betrayed about like this woman falls in love with this guy who ends up being like a secret white nationalist Interesting. and then like everybody everyone decried it saying like this is unrealistic and like this is just a such a fringe group in america that they have they'll have they'll serve no influence going forward oh yeah <laughs> i was like oh Whoops. wow he was on to something <laughs> hell i remember when uh people remember that movie with jeff bridges uh and uh, tim robbins arlington road yeah everyone's like that's ah, totally unrealistic like there's not just <laughs> groups of people out here planning to blow up buildings and like oklahoma city happened like two years later it's like well yeah oh, they're Oh, was that before the bombing? I believe so. I could be wrong on that, but I thought, but um, yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff where it's like, yeah, there's a lot of things with with Joe Esterhouse where he's like socially right about a bunch of things, but you know, uh, then all this just sleeping with random women stuff that kind of like takes it down a notch. (laughs) Oh no, that came after that. Okay, Um, script was written before it, but the movie came out uh, nine years or six years after it. But yeah. I always thought there. I always knew there was something weird about it, but yeah, that's. Uh, well, and you also, can you can kind of debate like, art is what we're dealing with now. Like in in reference to the the movie you're talking about that Esther Hauser wrote, is like we're not really dealing with like a new wave of white nationalist neo Nazis. We're just dealing with a lot of conservatives who now find themselves as fellow travelers with people yeah. that believe that sort of stuff. But I don't think in their heart they're just Nazis. They just don't want. No, but they'll take their vote anyway. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Like I said, fellow and, travelers and, and, for and, sure. And and all the Nazis have microphones, so it seems bigger than they are. But it's still. Yeah. It's it didn't disappear though. So. No, it's still around. There's still people that do it. But actual, when they talk about this, sometimes on the news they get so hyperbolic about oh, the rising white nationalism in America. It's like, well, really, if you're talking specifically about that. 
you're talking about maybe two or three thousand guys because like you can't have a job and function in society and get loans if you have like a swastika on your forehead and you're just openly you know that yeah. kind of guy but well yeah. i mean that that well the, when he's doing research in the movie the thing that like scared him is like is like the guys he found like they didn't seem on the outside like they were not white nationalists they were just like you know like plumbers and stuff like that but then like once you got in and you know good old christians and but then like when you got in deep it's like oh oh i got hitler on the wall oh <laughs> this is the meeting bunker yeah yeah it's, uh let's see yeah joe gets tired of writing scripts from producers that's when he starts doing spec scripts and then just like so then when he hands it over it's like look it's ready to shoot and they're like oh okay um because there was something weird. It's like, well, even his agents are like, no, you don't shoot, shoot do spec scripts. That's what that's what rookies do. Because uh, he said like most like spec scripts and stuff are basically like you build up a profile of of samples so people can read and like okay, let's get that guy in so then he can write the movie that we want to make. But we don't want to make his movie. <laughs> <laughs> he also hates writers, other writers too, because they're all uh they all want to be directors and so he's just more like no i just do the story man <laughs> i don't want to be a director um but then he has like crazy stories where like people do like a profile on him for like some magazine and at the end of like the profile they'd hand him a script and like and then just keep asking him if you're ready or not and it's like oh wow that sounds super embarrassing i could never do that yeah <laughs> and, and of course he milked it he says like oh, i haven't gotten to it yet and he waited till like they they couldn't change it until the print deadline so he made sure he got a positive review by this guy making the guy think that he would read a script and do something with it when he had no he had he was never going to do that yeah <laughs> who's using who <laughs> <laughs> and then he got like kind of a thank you slash you note from the guy where he's like he's like you joe but good play <laughs> yeah well played sir <laughs> Nobody has journalistic integrity. <laughs> but, no, uh, they don't. <laughs> but also, like, there's no, like you said, like all Hollywood seems to be just like drinking buddies, giving all their friends and people they find sexy jobs rather than anybody who's talented. So then, like anybody, uh, so like anybody who's talented or untalented, like have no way to get in unless they're just like friends with people. So yeah, if you're desperate, you'll just do anything to try to slide a script under somebody's door, even if it's terrible. But you know, you have your hopes and dreams. So. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's it's a horror. It's it's everything I've read and seen. Never done it myself, but it sounds like a like a horrible industry built on expectations, hope, and lies. Yep. And then the people that run it, the people that are actually in control, are just monsters. But that's how they got in control. Which everyone's like, ooh, Hollywood, but it's like, oh no, you've described every major industry in America. <laughs> Banking, yeah. computers, manufacturing. It's like, yeah, a lot of people have hopes and dreams when they go there, but then they <laughs> found out it's run by demons. And it's like, well, good luck. How, how are you going to navigate that world? It's like, well, you take on the characteristics of the demon, which is really what Basic Instinct is about. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, that's what makes Hollywood Animal good. Like, I don't know if he's, you know, he's a storyteller, so he's going to tell stories. He's not going to let truth get in the way of a good story. No, never do so that. So I don't, I'm not sure. Like, if all of a sudden he could, everything he's saying is true, but everything he says feels true. And that's so. <laughs> if it's not true, it should be. Or it's a, how would you say that? Like a simulacrum of the truth so close you can't tell it apart. You know, it's, it's yeah. like, yeah, it's, it's, 
it's it's the alchemist dream. It's the gold led into gold, <laughs> but you can't tell it apart. Yeah, the book is interesting because it splits. It has like it splits like every chapter because one like the first chapter will be about like one chapter will be about his his screenwriting career, and the other chapter is about him like growing up. Uh, I mean, like a Hungarian immigrant and stuff like that. And then it'll, like every chapter will like switch, and then I'll kind of like some things lead into the others. It's like ah, oh, this is where I got that idea. Like it does. I don't know. Yeah, because I always portrayed as a rock star in his book. He like and you see him in an interview, and he's just kind of like he's like he's a gruff voice, soft spoken. He's been smoking since he was twelve, so he doesn't seem like the rock star he they he portrays in his book. But I guess I guess like if you get him heated, he just like because he says like you know I was like I was in a you know I was in a refugee camp in World War II like there's nothing you can do to me yeah he's kind of like already been to the edge of like the worst <laughs> shit you could ever imagine in the modern world it's like oh this seems tame by comparison yeah maybe that energy like carry carry some like people are attracted to that now was he Jewish no but there's um he's like staunchly like Catholic now he kind of abandoned religion but then he like almost died from cancer so he found religion again ah. in his later life well the uh, reason like, i ask is because i know like in the late stages of world war ii before the germans just started retreating like they told the hungarian government like in 44 43 it's like give us all your jews because they'd been kind of holding out and they like slaughtered the hungarian Jew. i think in the greatest percentage of any of the countries that weren't germany and so I was wondering, like, oh, was he caught up? Was his family caught up in that? Because that was well, like, well, know. well, the thing I don't know yet, but I mean, I've kind of read it beforehand, but it hasn't come to part in the book. Uh, well, one thing first. So Estraust uh, is really uh, he apologizes for making smoking sexy and basic instinct. So he okay. he really he feels guilty about that, uh, especially because he got cancer by it. And yeah. his mom died of like cancer from cigarettes too and also in the book there's always kind of things where he 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 gets crossed with like anti-semitic stuff and he's very staunch about like like squashing that out like like no don't do that and there ends up being a turn later in his life where his dad gets like found out for like basically running anti-jew anti-semitic propaganda for the nazis in the war oh okay so yes actually yeah okay <laughs> yeah so there is a connection there weird um, and so he basically disowned his father and his father died and he kind of feels guilty about not reconciling with him before he died. <laughs> well, but, it's kind uh, of a tough one to reconcile, but yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, cause I've read all the books about that you can read and it's, it's like, oh yeah, what they did in Hungary was, was, um, it was very, it was like, why are we doing this now? Like we are obviously losing. It's like, no, we're just going to do this last thing. Uh, before we close down all the camps and it's like you've got to kill all the hungarians and they did too i mean it was like because the hungarian jews were largely unaffected throughout most of the world war ii but when the once the nazis realized they were losing they're about to be run out of eastern europe it's like no we've got to kill all all the it's like why it's like, why why now <laughs> but it's i don't know so, but i mean he wasn't i mean he wasn't killing jews but he was just part of the no he's just part of the machine yeah but but you know it's, it's hard to work in hollywood it's like hey your dad's like possibly helped kill jews like do you like are you gonna condone that it's, it's like nope <laughs> yeah it seems like you either keep it to yourself stuff or very quickly condemn it because 
He also talks about like Paul Verhoeven always refers to like Sharon Stone as being evil, like even though they worked together on on uh Total Recall like a few years before, like he but like Joe here is like kept saying that like Paul is, is like angry at Sharon Stone because she like refused to sleep with him. Okay. Um, cuz there's cuz there's like some rumors with her where it's like apparently that was like how she got gigs was just by sleeping with the directors and when the movie's over you leave them. And so I guess Paul felt left out of that. Uh, this is all rumor. I don't know if any of this is true. <laughs> Sounds like um, nasty stories people spread about more successful actors. But yeah. Yeah. Oh, and then, and then yeah, basically, he also talks about like Sharon Stone slept with him with Joe Esterhouse, like basically as a thank you. It's like, yeah, you made my career. Here, I'll throw you a fuck. Yeah. <laughs> and this, like, you know, this is a thing where like, you know, people get mad at him because producers like, well, I didn't fuck Sharon Stone. It's like, who's this guy? Uh, so yeah, just. This weird Hollywood shit that I hope doesn't exist anymore. It probably does, but probably just in um, a different form. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's all the notes I have for the book. I haven't finished reading it, but like I said, I got out to the basic instinct stuff, and I'm almost near the the showgirl stuff, which I'll might save for the next time we do. Uh, I went ahead and watched Basic Instinct too. Okay, <laughs> which, as far as I know, has terrible reviews. Yes, that's what I've heard. It's shot in London. It has a good English cast. The movie looks good. The movie's basically fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, it doesn't live up to the negative hype it has. Uh, but it also just, the movie also just kind of feels flat when you compare it to the original and the ending is stupid. So, but, you know, uh, it was an expensive movie. It looks, but it has like really cool set designs. It looks, it looks good. But it's basically Catherine putting herself up against a psychologist rather than a detective. Oh, okay. And, and just screwing with that guy. Yeah, I mean, it just just kind of falls flat regardless of the quality. Um, but yeah, I can't help. But that's because you know it's a sequel, so you're gonna draw comparisons, and when it doesn't do anything new, you're just like, well, this isn't as good as the original. So. Yeah. <laughs> but instead of uh, instead of ice picks, they have like belts and autoerotic associations. No, of course <laughs> they do. The yeah. Uh, this came out in 2006, I think. So. Yeah. Which would make her about the same age as Michael Douglas was in the first one, but they didn't play with that at all. But, no. Uh, and then, of course, actually, my my Renzo series I, on Comedy Central used to play all the time a spoof movie called Fatal Instinct, uh, which is a Carl Reiner movie, which he directed like The Jerk. Okay. <laughs> but this is more like explicitly like kind of like airplane kind of stuff. Um, you know, it's a spoof on Fatal Attraction, Basic Instinct, Sleeping with the Enemy um hand that rocks a cradle just nor thrillers in general so it's just all that stuff uh it's it's dumb but it's fun uh sean sean young is great as the finn fatale <laughs> okay she's talking to the detective early on and he's like he like says something stupid and she's like you're stupid i like that in a man <laughs> <laughs> Uh, has one of my favorite names for an actor, Armand Asante. Okay, <laughs> yeah, that guy's got a cool name. Uh, he does, he does, he does the Leslie Nielsen thing where he just like he isn't trying to be goofy. He's doing everything completely serious and letting all the gags around him do the work, and it like it's always excellent because it feels like kind of my modern day spoof movies don't get that. They're like everything's wacky. It's like no people got to be serious. Yeah, you got to have the straight man, you know. One of the best scenes in modern cinema was the naked gun when it's him and Priscilla Presley and she's going up into the attic and he's like, nice beaver, because he's looking up her dress <laughs> and she brings down a stuffed beaver. It's, like, like, I, it's just so amazing. <laughs> no one's laughing. It's like, yeah. 
yeah, there's like some great gags in there where like somebody they're they're having the one lady's like trying to kill her husband, the main character, and then so they're talking in Yiddish, and there's like this guy across the bench, and like he's he's like talking about like, no, nah, you won't get caught. Like most like you know people don't get caught when they commit murder or whatever or something like that, and they're like. It's like you like you understand Yiddish? She's like, no, but I can read the subtitles and they like look down at the subtitles. <laughs> but then a movie the a scene I thought was in this movie was actually in a different movie. I'm gonna say so they there's a spoof scene in the movie Loaded Weapon One, which is another kind of like unheralded spoof movie that people don't talk about. It's very funny. <laughs> they they spoof the interrogation sequence and there's like it's like every time they cut back, there's like all the guys like are like undressing and they keep asking like baseball questions and stuff like what do you think about the designated hitter rule and she's like it's like i think it ruins the purity of the game um it's kathy ireland doing the sharon stone rule and then there's part where she like spreads her leg and then like they cut they kind of like cut to like they kind of cut to the reaction and then they cut back and there's just like a stuffed beaver in the chair and it's literally says gratuitous beaver shot on the screen <laughs> the beaver smoking too yeah yeah okay yeah. okay i remember this one yeah yeah that's fa- all the fatal instinct check it out <laughs> yeah. it's on pluto tv it's free with ads like is that a, it's a good spoof movie like it's dumb but if you've never seen it before it'll be a, it's a good time so but yeah that's all the research i did on on basic instinct like i said i've never seen it before so it was, it was a fun watch <laughs> i don't think there's any reason to ever see it again but yeah it's, 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 it's cool. <laughs> i mean if um, you have access to 24-hour porn <laughs> if, if that's your angle then yeah you don't need to see this again now if you just like a well-shot movie that looks cool from an earlier time it's like yeah this is a great movie to watch I don't, I don't think I mean, I've seen it, but like, yeah, the, the sex thriller or the erotic thriller was definitely a thing in the 90s and just kind of like disappeared along the way. Yeah. Um, but this is probably the best of them. Like, I'm trying to. I, don't know, I never saw Fatal. That was in the 80s. I never saw Fatal Attraction. I saw Disclosure, which is which is fine. But I remember was like almost in like an embarrassing like 3D VR sequence in that movie. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was set at a computer company. <laughs> I'm not sure when nine and a half weeks come. I'm not even sure what it's about. That's just like, might just be a relationship sex movie. Uh, there's some stuff later on that they did, but yeah, they just, they really don't make them anymore. No, uh, it's probably, probably, and probably basic instinct too. probably they put a nail in the coffin because when they came out with that, they spent 70 million on it and they made like 4 million the first weekend. So oops, <laughs> that's the end of that. <laughs> like I directed it, uh, like, so like John McKiernan was supposed to direct it at some point. Uh, I'm not sure if he got, Put, put in jail before then literal um, jail this time <laughs> um and then into i can't remember the guy directed he directed like memphis bell and rob roy and stuff like that he's like he's a fine director uh he said he just like inherited the, he someone had to make it and he inherited the poison chalice wow <laughs> you, you got the short straw you gotta lose a studio a bundle <laughs> So I don't know how, yeah, because like Sharon Stone like sued the studio for not making the movie because she was like gonna get like fourteen million, uh, whether it got made or not. So they basically were contractually obligated to make the movie. So they just made the movie to make the movie. <laughs> uh, and, and Esther House didn't write it. It was some other guy who wrote some stuff. <laughs> but yeah, it was basically just doomed to fail. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it didn't stand a chance. Like I said, it's like it. It's better than what people say of it but it's still like 
it's you'd much rather just as its own movie it thing. would have been interesting but as a follow-up to this it was a flop yeah yeah exactly yeah. anyways if you like what you heard and how couldn't you um actually did i even say like when this came out <laughs> basically it came out march 20th 1992 <laughs> nope we did mention uh, when like, it came out i think yeah yeah we mentioned all those other movies that came out in 92 so <laughs> Uh, Sister Act, <laughs> Fried Green Tomatoes, uh, Batman Returns. Well, if you like what I heard, and how can it? You can find us at anchor.fm slash Verhoeven Effect, or you can go to verhoeveneffect.com. It takes you to the same place. You can rate our podcast and rate us whatever you want. But the only thing the algorithm listens to is the highest rating. So, yeah, <laughs> do what you will. But <laughs> remember, you control the algorithm. The algorithm doesn't control you. Uh, we have listener support at verhoeveneffect.com, where you can support this podcast at a monthly stipend of either 99 cents, 499, or 999. And if you support us, we'll just do more faster because that's where quality comes from. <laughs> and you find us at Twitter at Verhoeven Effect, Facebook at Verhoeven Effect. And you can find us on YouTube uh, at American Greed Factor. You can watch both this show and that show live and unedited. And we also have t-shirts at blowthecollar.com slash Greed Factory. So for the Verhoeven Effect podcast, I'm Colin. I'm Nathan. Goodbye, America. Goodbye, America.